audio conversation with Chase Kletsky, recorded Monday, December 10th, 2012. I sought out Chase for this conversation, for this interview, uh, specifically because of one event that took place in May of 2010. It took place in a cornfield in Tennessee at night. Um, I had heard her discuss this, you know, somewhat briefly in another audio podcast, and I was a little confused. It seemed like they were talking about other things, and they didn't dwell on this one event. And and I found the the oh gosh, I don't know how else to say it. The storyline of this event absolutely fascinating. Uh, it's very scary. And she also describes a, a profound sense of fear, something that she was having trouble articulating. And, and I got the sense that her and I shared something where I have experienced what I can only think of is the exact same thing, this profound sense of fear. I'll often refer to it as a synthetic fear. Her event took place in early May of 2010. It happened on May 8th. My experience on the other side of the country, my, mine took place in southern Colorado, uh, took place on May 13th, 2010. So just five days apart, which which adds something extremely strange to the overall phenomenon, not only just the story, but just the, the sort of mega weirdness that surrounds all of this stuff. Uh, so what we do is we go, we go at it. We talk about this one event, you know, from every angle I can think of as, as we're um, in, in the middle of the dialogue, which I think was very helpful for me and, um, and perhaps even helpful for Chase. She said during the interview that she doesn't really like to talk about this event and she's shy or let's say hesitant to do audio interviews uh, where she describes this event. So maybe if uh, she's asked in the future to describe it, all she needs to do is to point to this particular podcast. Cause I don't think it, I don't think it would take another hour and a half to, to delve into it with as much detail as, as we dug into it. And I was very grateful for her to be so forthcoming with what she experienced. Um, so, so that's the first Gosh, close to an hour and a half of, of the audio interview. Um, after that, we talk about MUFON. Uh, Chase has a long history as a field investigator studying UFOs as well as cryptids and, and other paranormal phenomena like ghosts. But we talk about her time at MUFON, especially at the end. She was promoted to star team manager at one point, uh, which is somewhat of a prestigious role at, at MUFON. Now that that title means that she's the one that gets the uh, the oh yeah yeah like the most profound cases the cases where entities are walking on the ground where there's a where there's a very high chance of there being uh, direct evidence of something very strange. In that role, she seemed to have uh, created some waves. She she was doing her job. People at the top didn't like the way she was doing her job. So. As opposed to getting into those details, and I will say those details are interesting and they are covered very well in an audio series done by a fellow podcaster, Jerry Pippin, I would I would advise uh, anyone who is even slightly interested in this to go ahead and click on that link in the show notes, and then they can go to that interview where Chase talks in great detail about her personal frustrations and what happened uh, with MUFON. I'm also friends with a woman named Elaine Douglas, and she has a very similar experience. So I've heard about uh, the troubles at MUFON uh, from a number of different people, 
and it uh, it paints a very dark picture. I'm going to actually use the word sinister. It paints a sinister picture of MUFON. I am forced to conclude that MUFON has been infiltrated by outside sources with an agenda. I don't know what that agenda is. I don't know what the outside source is. I can only assume that the outside source is some sort of government agency that has a very keen interest in the overall UFO phenomena, and they are playing MUFON like a pawn on a chessboard, and it is uh, it is not hidden in what these people are sharing, what the people who have since left MUFON are sharing. You don't have to dig deep to infer what I'm inferring and to come to the conclusion that I've come to. Uh, that may sound uh, heavy-handed, but it is the way things are playing out. And um, I will also say that it's really great interviewing someone who has a nice microphone. I feel very strongly that the sound quality on these shows uh, can be can be quite good, uh, given the limited resources I, as a podcaster, have. So what you're about to hear, uh, we've got great audio. There's a couple tiny little glitches in Skype; those are incidental. But what what you know, what you're going to listen to is a, is a seems like a excellent quality audio production. I'm very proud of that. This interview is long. It is uh, pretty close to two and a half hours long. Please enjoy. Hey, Chase, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. I've been looking forward to it, Mike. Thank you for having me. Good, good. And I've been excited, too. I've been um, uh, there, There's one story in particular I want to talk with you about. But before I get to that, um, just uh, you have described yourself as a boots-on-the-ground, nuts-and-bolts researcher. Absolutely. Um, I have, wear many hats right now, but uh, my forte and, and my love and something I stay very focused on and I try not to get too distracted away from is investigating UFOs. Yes. And, and, what do you, and so how, what type of investigations have you done? Uh, all kinds. Uh, it depends on what comes your way, but it, everything from, um, you know, sightings, reported landings, uh, reported contact, abductions, you know, pretty much all of them. I've been doing this since 1994, so, you know, I've been around the block a few times. So what's that, about 18 years? Yes, I think so. Okay. It's almost two decades. Yeah, very close to 20 years. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, I moved into the house I'm living in in, in uh, uh, 1994, so I have a pretty good uh, – I can wrap my mind around that one pretty well. <laughs> so um, now – as far as the um, – that you've done a lot of work with MUFON, correct? I have, yes. And, and, uh, and now you're doing it independently on your own? Yes, absolutely. Uh-huh. And how has that transition been? You know, I have to be honest and just say that when I first resigned my position from MUFON, I was terrified because uh, it's all I had done was – you know, kind of wrap my head around and invest my time and energies into this one organization, you know, so there was a little panic after I left about, oh my gosh, you know, how do I get cases? How do I continue, you know, my personal passion and, you know, stay relevant in this field. And for me personally, what I found was double the opportunities, uh, double the contacts. And, you know, that was just what happened to me personally. And in the last few years, you've had an online presence doing a, a, a podcast series called uh, Project White Paper? Yes, yes. We have a radio show. Um, it started with two of us, and unfortunately, uh, the host 
um, you know, felt as though uh, he had to move on to other things. But I've continued Project White Paper, and I am with the Global Radio Alliance. And that just started up within the last uh, less than a year, just the last few months. You know, I have to say that usually going to a startup, uh, any kind of startup company is risky. And I could not have made a better decision. I honestly couldn't have. And all you have to do is look at their business model that they set up as an FM type uh, business plan. And what they've done is create a presence that absolutely rivals anybody in the industry for, you know, five years plus. Great. And, and what's the format? I mean, what's your focus? My focus on the show is basically unknowns. Uh, Project White Paper really is about the boots on the ground and the investigators. And, you know, I love the big names and the authors. So we do a lot with them as well. But I really like bringing in people that are involved in cases and you know and that's why i call them the boots on the ground they're they're the guys that are you know out there embedded that some people may never hear of or hear of their work and they're really doing some great cases out there yeah now um so as far as what i do and i and i have a really hard time you know defining what i uh you know like am i a researcher am i like an invest am, i don't know if i am am i a uh you know, or a journalist. I don't know how to describe it. And, you know, I'm doing this podcast series. I also write a lot. I'm also sharing a lot of my own experiences. And, um, you know, to me, I guess the the issue for me is that there's a very personal uh, side to these experiences. And that, that is much more of a focus to me than what would be burn marks in a, in a backyard, um, you know, in a circular pattern or something like that. I, I would rather focus on the, the effects that the, uh, the witness had, rather than the effects that the uh, that the grass had. Let me put it that way. You know, and that's why this field, we need to network, be- because what you do is so essential in our world, yet we still need that forensic mind behind it. So partnering and networking together and, you know, kind of forgetting the the egos and mind, mind, mind mentality when it comes to these cases and really reaching out to people that are working in the community. And that's exactly how I go into an investigation. It's about that witness really getting the answers he contacted me for. Now, sometimes that's what's going on, but the focus is always the witness and what they experienced. It's their events. They don't become mine because I'm the investigator. So I've always been completely focused on the best interest of a witness and that includes what you do so it's very important when you bring teams out to kind of cover all these aspects of unknown phenomena Uh, very much so very much so so there's one case in particular that um you have spoken about i've heard it online and i've heard you mention it at other times um in your uh i think on project white paper and it involves a case in Tennessee from 2010. Yes, that was the first time I, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I've been a UFO investigator since 1994. And that was the first time I ever saw something that was so unexplainable and so extraordinary. Um, I've seen a lot of of things. I've seen a lot of unknowns. uh, But this one clearly shook my world for 
lack of a better expression. Now, one of the reasons I'm, I'm, I'm doing this is because I was a little confused on all the, uh, you know, I just, I didn't have a clear, uh, like narrative of the story of what what happened so you know i'm gonna and i may seem a little uh you know if i come across as pushy or if i ask too many questions uh, you know i'm just trying to you know better understand the the story because i because it it is fascinating um and so before we start you were working as a star team manager at mufon and this this case itself came under the star team's uh umbrella oh no um at that point i actually held a much more prestigious and important title, and that was field investigator. So this event actually happened before I accepted the star team position. Oh, okay. So, so, so you were a field investigator, and then you were um, – so how did you end up in Tennessee? I actually lived there. My husband's active duty, and he was in Millington at the time. So we happened to live there. Oh, okay, okay. So that fair enough. Um, that's I just had assumed. I wrote down in my notes here that part it was part of the star team. So, um, so, how did the original case arrive to you? Um, this the Tennessee case from two thousand and ten. It's funny because it started out a category one, just a lights in the sky case, which is why I'm very, very um, strongly opinioned about don't ignore these cases. But that it just started out, um, I was a field investigator in the state of Tennessee, and the case was uh, thrown my way. And even the chief investigator, when he sent it to me, um, you know, made a little note that it's probably not going to turn out to be too much. But, um, you know, in, you know, I, I jumped right on these cases and called the witness right away. And it was very apparent through the first interview that he wasn't sure what he was doing either. In other words, here's a very prominent, credible, you know, seemingly normal person uh, that sees these things that are so extraordinary, and he gets on the Internet, and he just starts Googling, and he finds MUFON. So he was a little leery on how much to say, how this works, you know, which, like most witnesses, they don't understand the process. So, you know, he was a little, um, little shortcoming with some of the information at first, but you know, I continued the contact and a trust was earned. So, you know, more and more came out as we continued the investigation. Now, was this just a single person, just a man, or was it him and his family? Yeah, it included his family and uh, he had cousins. And, you know, so there were many witnesses to a lot of what was going on there. And as the interview progressed, you know, he would come, I'd say come clean, but he would reveal a more and more detail of what had been going on for some time in that area. And the thing that struck me was he was born and raised in this small town. And so they know what's normal and what's not. And he, he would tell me never in my whole life seen this kind of activity. Oh, as far as winning the trust, um, you know, I've found it's not so much winning the trust, but I think that, that um, people need some time to to fully i think in essence process the story themselves and and in in a way i know what i do and i'm not a therapist i don't pretend to be but i am a good listening ear and and i have done a lot of um just talking with folks who claim mostly the abduction phenomena and what what i need to do and it's essential is is before anything can happen i really need to spend 
like well over three hours talking to the person because it's near the end of that three hours that they will they will share the stuff that that almost seems like they're scared to share that almost seems buried and i guess maybe gaining their trust is is as good a way to say it as anything but i think that the the uh, very very unusual stories will then emerge after spending that amount of time with someone and you're absolutely right and that's been my experience as well and i think a lot of it for people that have never reported something like this and you know things that are this extraordinary you know when i say earn their trust it is i'm completely honest with the witnesses uh when i ask the questions sometimes i'll even explain why i'm asking and i think that's where it comes you're almost helping them through a process as well yeah yeah very much so now so did you have an initial visit with the with this uh is it an individual or is it a group i don't want to i know i don't need to hear names or anything um, it started as a group, but as uh, events unfolded, it ended up being, um, I call him the head of the household. It ended up just being the primary witness that reported it. His friends and family were not at all happy uh, with his decision to go ahead and bring in outsiders or to even report this. Um, I think this was something that he couldn't let go of. He in his mind, was bringing in, you know, professionals, bringing in the people that have been involved in, you know, UFOs for a long time. So to him, he needed answers. He, he wanted to talk to us and, you know, figure out what was going on, where the rest of his family seemed more like, let's just, as long as it stays low key, um, we don't want this to become a circus in our lives in our hometown and in our home. Yeah. So, so were there multiple visits to the, to the fellow's home? Yes. And then um, now the, so uh, the one visit that I want to talk about is an event that took place at night. Yes. That was the first time I had uh, made the trip up there. And that actually was delayed because at that point, Tennessee had, experienced what they call the thousand year flood and from Memphis to Nashville uh, was anywhere uh, completely saturated and under, you know, six to eight feet of water. And so that really postponed a lot of this, um, you know, one-on-one activity. And so we waited for the waters to recede because most of the roads were closed. I couldn't even get there. So once we were able to actually drive and get to the home, we were there immediately. Um, and, and how, did, so as far as getting there immediately, was there like a fall, uh, excuse me, a phone call that was, that seemed urgent or anything? Yeah, he, I had been talking to him for, you know, some time and there was, you know, something that he, he had been doing constantly, which was keeping me up to date with anything new that happened. And, you know, I got reports from him during this flooding time of, you know, black helicopters and, you know, but this one was extremely urgent because he mentioned the three lights that he has mentioned before, but this time he said, you know, Chase, the triangle. And at this point, I think we were scheduled to go to his property um, on a Saturday. And this this was sooner, actually. So um, I made the decision, if he's got ongoing activity now, I can make it. 
And then did, did you go alone? You went with a team, it sounds like. Well, I went with one other investigator, and that's because the chief investigator of MUFON at the time, rightfully so, was not happy at all with, you know, my rapid deployment by myself. You know, he insisted, thank goodness, you know, that I have another investigator with me. It wasn't just good enough, my husband or somebody like that. And that was a really good call because um, because of the things that happened, you know, we had another you know, unbiased witness and a UFO investigator to validate. So it turned out that it wasn't my husband, you know, kind of saying, yeah, 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 what she said or yes. You know what I mean? Oh, so, yeah, yeah. So I went and I picked her up beforehand, and that was that was a good deal. Uh, we don't like to go out, even with the STAR team. It's really a rule that two have to go, and that's for many reasons, safety of the investigators as well. Okay, now so there was a woman, and um, you don't have to use names, but um, for our purposes, what would you, would you did you would you call her like the secondary investigator with you, or how would you want to? Yeah, uh, she was uh, assigned as the secondary. Yes. Okay. Okay. We'll just use that. So, because um, I know I've heard you tell the story, and it sounds like there's some you know people want their you know want their privacy involving these things. Um, so you arrived on the scene with your with your secondary, this woman. Yes. And what and what happened? You know, it was almost immediate. We pulled up in the driveway and of course, uh, I was very familiar on the phone with the witness. So there was like the handshakes and you know, finally, you know, we get here and um, you know, that little exchange of greeting and I introduced him to the secondary and you know, we literally, you know, he was very anxious. Uh, you know, come on over here. Uh things have been happening all afternoon and um, sure enough, he he's pointing out where he had just last seen uh, some things going on in the sky. And sure enough, we're looking up and we're witnessing exactly what he was describing. You know, at this point. Oh, oh, which is what? Uh, little lights starting to pop up. And they were, you know, kind of high in the sky, but it, they were very clear uh, groups of these lights. Okay, now so just, I'm just picturing the scene as like a rural farm, uh, potentially in the trees. Uh, you know, Tennessee is different than where I live here in Idaho, uh, where there'd be you know, there's it's pretty open here. But I'm assuming that that would have there would have been uh, you know, you would have had an obstructed view from where you were. Where we were standing at this point, um, there was a, a, a thick tree line, and you know, we're kind of standing on a hill and. Um, it was very rural, and what they do in this town is farm. So there are huge pastures and open properties like that, but it's also very hilly. Uh, the rough terrain in the places that were not farmed, um, they were pretty strenuous. But, um, yeah, we had a really good view here. But at this point, um, you know, I'm kind of looking, and, and I'm really kind of going through my checklist because at this point I'm really out there not thinking I'm going to see anything. I'm thinking I am going to have an opportunity to give this witness exactly what he wants, answers. It's an FAA you know, configuration. Um, it's a satellite. It's Venus. I mean, you know, we were there to, you know, kind of rule out some of these things. But honestly, in my mindset and after investigating for all those years, it kind of never occurred to me, Mike, that we were going to see exactly what he had been claiming 
because it's never happened before. So it, it, it honestly and sincerely was the last thing I thought was going to happen. Okay, okay. So um, at that point, you then moved with the witness and, and some other members to, to a, an open field? Yes. At this time, he had suggested that uh, they had a acre, a, a, about 100 acres. He didn't say that at the time. What he said is, hey, we have a cornfield where uh, my cousins and I like to watch them, and it's this big, open, panoramic view, and you'll get to see these things a lot better. And that's when we decided to go down. And so you got in a truck and all headed down together? Yes. Now, how many people were, were headed down to this field at that point? There were three of us in the truck, and it was the witness, uh, the secondary investigator, and myself. It was a little later on that the cousins kind of showed up. But ultimately, like his wife, you know, uh, came, introduced herself, little things like that. So, so, um, so you all arrive in this field. And, and yeah. just can you describe the field? And, and this was nighttime, obviously. Yes, it was nighttime and it was definitely getting dark, but it wasn't absolutely, you know, the pitch black of later on. And it was, it was very open. It was early planting season. So the corn was only about four to five inches high, which made it very pliable. So we were still able to drive into the corn and walk on it and not hurt any crops at all. What I remember thinking was, oh my gosh, I've never seen a cornfield this big. And just absolutely what he was saying, it was surrounded by a tree line and there was a cow pasture. Uh, We couldn't see it, but we were told it was in back of where the corn was planted. So the end of the corn rose, uh, I guess there was like a little pathway to drive. And then that opened up into a big um, pasture that they kept cows. Okay, so you arrive on the scene there, and um, I mean, I'm assuming you have some sort of equipment, whether that be video cameras or recorders. We did. Uh, I brought all sorts of things with me, and at this point, I am setting this stuff up. And we had four cameras, different makes and models, uh, trifield meters, you know, anything like that. Because when you have uh, lights or activity in an environment, you know, I'm trying to take the scientific readings on electromagnetic, um, you know, electric uh, changes in an atmosphere and also radio waves. I'm, I'm looking for anything that triggers that as well. Okay. So, um, yeah, just proceed, go on with the story. It, it, were there, um, at this point, did other folks arrive at the field or was this later? Um, this was a little later um, and there were Several of us in the field at the time. And how many is several? I'm just, I just want to. Uh, seven. Seven. Oh, that's much higher than I thought it would be. Seven people. Right. There were three of us involved in the investigation. And then, uh, and then four other people had j- arrived just to, um, just, just to be, see what was going on, I guess, suspect. Absolutely. Yes. And it was like his cousins and stuff. Now we're in the middle of the field, so we're not really engaged or talking to them they're just kind of mulling around a little bit on the outskirts um more towards the tree line and a little bit back okay so um so what what were you seeing at this point um setting up the equipment and i pretty much had everything good to go and you know i'm writing notes um and at this point the witness pulls out this big old shotgun now you have to remember you know we're we're two little girls that drove to the middle of Tennessee woods, you know, not knowing who these people are at all. And 
I kind of looked at him and I guess the expression on my face, he started joking. He said, Chase, I'm not a serial killer. I, I would never hurt you. He said, the gun is for our protection because we have coyotes out here. And he said, it is, you know, just for our protection. So he just kind of lays a shotgun in the back of the truck at this point. And I just kind of laugh and, and I believed him. So, you know, I didn't think twice about it and actually thought it was a good idea. And it's something that came into play later on because, again, this is a witness who knows the area, knew to bring something like this because there were threats of coyotes. But it also showed this is a man who wasn't going to usher us in and get out of there. He's going to stand his ground and shoot the coyotes because that's what they do. Yeah, no, I live in rural Idaho. This is you're, you're not saying anything that's that's surprising me here. So, um, so so what, it, it, what, did you start? I know I've heard a little bit of the story before. So, um, at at a certain point, you started seeing things in the sky. We did, and again, those little lights were popping up, and you know, I started watching a group of them, and I, I'm so mesmerized. I you know, I kind of can't believe what I'm seeing because I'm still going down the checklist of what these could possibly be. And the way they're maneuvering, they come together in a group and then they shoot off and some would blink out and, you know. Oh, and here, let me interrupt. Did you get any footage of this? We actually did. Uh, there's over 600 photos from this case that were taken. Unfortunately, not all the evidence uh, came through and we'll explain that in a little bit. But we do. We do have pictures of some of these lights in the sky and uh, some visuals. But, of course, they're just like every other picture of orange fireballs and lights in the sky but that's exactly what we were seeing and that's what we photographed so you know yeah there's there's over 600 photos and that's all on a disc and uh was you know properly documented and move on okay yes keep going this is fascinating yeah and the witness at one point um kind of you know hit my arm and he's like oh my gosh chase this is what i'm talking about these are the lights watch this watch this and the secondary investigator and i both turned our attention and we see this light it was much lower than the uh the little what we call the dancing lights you know it was kind of like they were maneuvering um almost training or having fun i i can't describe it except you know they would come together do a few things and you know, they kind of had their own activity. And then here comes uh, these new lights. You know, first we see one, and then I see two more white lights behind it. At this point, I'm starting to realize as it's coming closer that they're not just three lights, that it this is a configuration of a triangle and are most likely together on an object. Um, and I'm still waiting for that, but, the, you know, as it's coming closer, I'm coming to that conclusion. And, I, and I'm seeing this. And then we see this red light underneath it. Um, and at this point, you know, my mind's just going back to, you know, all the reports we had seen and even some that I've worked that claim these triangles. And so honestly, I'm just processing. Here it is. I'm looking right at it. I've heard about these things. I believe the witnesses. It's just unbelievable that I'm standing here and it's coming right towards us. It literally completely silent the movement of this triangle is different it it doesn't look like anything i've ever seen like a drone um you know remote control it moves differently than standard flight that i'm used to seeing and that 
was really the first indicator where I'm thinking, wow, this is so strange. And it was so silent. And as it got closer and more over our head, you could clearly see the stars being blacked out. It was definitely a triangle. Um, the one we saw, the red light underneath it, was not directly in the middle of the craft. From what we saw, it was a little further up towards the front light and, and the smaller part of the triangle. And at this point, you know, I'm grabbing my equipment. I'm, I'm trying to get readings from the tri-field. Uh, we're trying to snap pictures. Nothing's working. And I'm so frustrated because all these years, all these cases, and it's right here. And I can't get anything. And I'm so frustrated. I believe I dropped the F-bomb. I was so frustrated. I just couldn't believe nothing was working. So I just assumed at this point it was a battery drain, which is something very common in our field. As well as in um, uh, crop circles. This gets reported all the time. Yes, and paranormal activity. So it's, it's just something where... You know, at a certain point, I just kind of put everything down and continued to watch. Now, this is almost, it's already past us. And now, um, excuse, let me, did it fly directly overhead? Directly over our heads. And, and it, can you give an estimate of the altitude? The, that's the one thing I've actually learned. We, we did that because MUFON um, state director insisted on it. And to this day, it's the only part of the report that has any discrepancy at all. Uh, the witness thought, you know, it was like 1,500 feet. I thought it was, uh, I don't know, like 30,000, which is ridiculous that I know now. But, you know, it's just really hard. And all of us admitted we don't know at all how to properly gauge that. You know, you could put your hand out and, you know, we have all the tricks. When you see something this extraordinary, it makes it that much more difficult. That was absolutely, yeah. I mean, it was and just the weather that night. Was it a clear, starry night? Perfect. Calm? Yep. Any wind? Um, you know, I don't remember it being windy, but I also uh, remember putting down that it was pretty, you know, it was, it was warm. It was clear. Um, it was definitely, you know, a calm evening. So no wind was recorded at all on the initial report. Like when we got there, that's all stuff that we... Uh, put down his weather and all that and um but what i remember most is when the triangle was in our area how different everything felt and everything was extremely silent and it was almost like you were put in a room silent like it was made to be that way it was just a very strange experience to, to to understand that feeling of silence and because it's so extraordinary being outside, especially in the woods, you know, there were crickets or, you know, those other little bugs um, that, you know, make noise and, you know, cows moaning in the background, nothing. This is, this is very, I mean, obviously you've obviously heard this before, but, um, and I've heard it before also that silent uh, sensation, uh, it gets called the Oz effect by some researchers. Yes. Um, and, and or the Oz factor, I guess. It's a good name for it. You know, it's it's something that it it just I so clearly like when I talk about this case, which is not very often. Um, I really just kind of pick and choose the interviews. You know what I mean? But when I talk about this case, it's something that as I talk about it, you almost relive and and can almost sense that 
silence. So Oz effect is um, the perfect way to describe it. Yes. Now, I have felt something very similar on a number of occasions. And, um, you know, the one of the ways I describe it is almost the head in the fishbowl. Like it, it is so disorienting that it almost seems like um, uh, like like reality itself is being altered. And I know that 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 may not make sense, but um, that that's the only way I, that's the only vocabulary words I can use to describe it. It seems like something um, it almost seems that my thoughts were clearer and and that colors and visuals were hyper clear. I don't know if that you had that effect or not. You know, it absolutely makes sense. And during the experience, I was aware that things were different and the environment had changed. But it's not until after you step out of this and, you know, process what happened that you really start remembering the details like, you know, I don't remember hearing the bugs, you know, because at that moment, I'm not thinking I'm not hearing them. You know, it's just I remember being very surprised at one, how differently this craft looks as it's moving through the sky. It's unlike any flight I've ever seen. And the other thing that struck me was absolutely how silent everything got. Yes. Yes. Now, now I have one memory. I would have been a 12-year-old boy of seeing something in the sky. It was a coffee can-shaped object. And that's something that I've tried to describe um, is the movement of this object was not like uh, a craft in flight. Let me put it that way. I mean, a craft in flight somehow, you know what I mean? It's it's being, you know, an airplane, let's say, is is pushing itself forward with an engine. It's it's using its wing configuration to displace the air in a way that keeps uh, it keeps it uh, off the ground. It creates some sort of lift effect. So, you know, what I when you see an airplane, you are seeing a mechanical structure pushing itself through the air and using the air it is flying through the air what i was seeing was something different it was it was not it was not flying in any conventional way that that i can try to articulate um and you and i are pretty close to the same age and and so here's the the only way i can describe what i witnessed do you do you remember like with the advent of just like the dawning of the computer generated animation Yes. So what you would see, and even even the early generations, which which are crude by today's standards, um, you would see those, and the the movement would be so different in the computer generated animation as opposed to live action footage or what would be you know cell animation where where an animator would actually draw a figure. You know, you were seeing something entirely different, and I remember. I, mean, I was I was working as a young illustrator, and I was you know I was very much involved in uh, doing animation in the film industry when when all this was happening, and I remember the 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 visuals seemed so sort of liquidy smooth that it that it that it was jarring to my eyes and to my to my uh, to my own sensibilities on how motion should look. That was a long explanation, but that's the only that's the only thing I can equate this thing to, was like seeing that 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 strangely smooth computer generated animation for the first time. 
it's a good analogy and, and you're right it's about the closest thing that describes it and i can tell you honestly as an investor i would almost be frustrated i'd never let the witness know this but when they'd say well it's kind of yellowish or it kind of worked like this and i'm thinking you know how do i better ask this question to get more detail and it would never come and it would be so frustrating and you would have a color chart that has absolutely every possible combination of blending you know the color charts oh sure and i'd say point out the color of it well it was kind of like this and you're thinking every possible options here what do you mean kind of so you know logic would tell you that well maybe they're not sure of what they've seen what i've learned after also witnessing something so extraordinary you can't describe it i i know that feeling when i say it was kind of yellowish you know and later in that evening we had something and that's exactly how we describe it it's i can't find it on the chart so it's made me a better investigator i definitely ask better questions but i understand completely now when a witness is really struggling to give you that exact answer and it's not that their memory is blurred or they don't know exactly what they saw there are no words to describe things they've never seen before yes i have i have an experience of seeing a color um uh, this took place in 1974 people who've listened to the show you know are going to be bored with me retelling parts of it but um i was with someone else and we saw uh, it was walking at the nighttime it was walking at nighttime it was a beautiful calm autumn evening in the midwest in just place in michigan um and uh, I would have been 12 years old, so that's now 38 years ago. And I clearly remember the sky, the entirety of the sky, all of it, you know, whatever I could see. It felt like a very calm, uh, pleasant night. It felt like for one second, God flipped a light switch and lit the entire sky orange. But it was it wasn't just orange. It was that deep self-illuminating orange. Do you know how when you look at a at a at a campfire and the coals are glowing that rich, beautiful, uh, vibrant, warm orange color? Right. So that was the color of the entire sky. Um, you know, that radiant color. It wasn't just like a it wasn't just like an orange piece of construction paper. It was it was actually a radiant self-illuminating orange. Um and I, I don't know if I'd be able to pick it out on a color chart, but I would be able to make a little campfire and then let the coals die down and then point to the, that color for the investigator and say, there, there, that's it. Um, uh, I don't understand why that happened. So what it lasted maybe a second and then the sky click just turned right back to, uh, to, to the normal nighttime sky. There was, there was, it was absolutely silent. There was no, uh, you know, like if it had been lightning or if it had been like, let's say something exploding just beyond our view, or if it had been some sort of, uh, you know, there would have been some understandable, you know, it would have gotten brighter and then it would have dimmed out. That's not what happened. It was just, it was just went from, it would, if you had, if you were editing this on film, there would be, you know, between each frame, there would have been no transition. It would have just gone right from nighttime sky on one frame. The frame right next to it would have gone to this rich orange. It would have lasted a second, and then it would have gone right back to the nighttime sky. Um, I will have to say the silence of it was almost more bizarre than the color. 
Uh, yes. It left yes. me very dis- distressed. It was jarring. Let me put it that way. That's a better word for it. It was very jarring. So go on. So now this is, I feel, and I'm, I'm glad we like are examining each one of these little, you know, oddities in depth here. This is helping me a lot to better understand the case. Um, so, so that this craft passes over and did you watch it, you know, just drift away? Did you lose sight of it? Did it, did it follow the same line? It, it, as it uh, continued on the exact same path, cause it never wavered. It never changed altitude direction. It literally um, stayed completely as, we initially saw it on that course. And, you know, as we're turning around and, and watching this leave, I think it was the first time I looked at the uh, secondary investigator and both of us, our eyes were, you know, the size of Texas. And we were clearly, we knew the other one was just as excited. Like, honestly, it was OMG. Are you serious? It was awesome. You know, and we both knew that we had just witnessed something absolutely incredible. And there were four other people in the field. Was there any contact with them or were they too far away? Um, I, they had seen this before. See, these were all witnesses that, you know, eventually I had the chance to talk to every one of them and they gave statements. Um, these, these were, they had seen this before, you know. So at this point, I believe they had left the cornfield and was actually uh, in route because they, two of them report seeing it coming, but they were already in transition. So they wanted to go because what they started doing were chasing these lights. And uh, the witness and his cousins started literally getting in their car and just tracking them and trying to find them and chasing them from one field to the other. And so I believe at this point, these boys, <laughs> these awesome guys, literally wanted to run up. There was a little driveway or a little uh, place to come down to the field off the main road. And they were running up because they wanted to get in their vehicles and chase the triangle. Oh, fascinating. Okay, so continue on with the story. So you're, you're there in the field. There are seven of you. Um, with camera equipment that doesn't work and, and, and a giant triangle that, that glides over you in a silent way? At this point, as it's leaving, you know, we're, again, you know, realizing we just saw something. Um, the secondary investigator is, you know, writing things down. Um, you know, I almost think she was on a cell phone trying to make a phone call at that point. And I'll explain why some of this is hard to put all together. Um, and you know, in a little bit, but you know, at this point I'm turned around, I'm focused on my equipment because I think I have a battery drain. So, you know, I grab you know, a bunch of spare batteries out of my bag. I put them up on the platform and I'm, you know, starting to unscrew the tri-field meter and I notice it's on and everything's lit up and I pick up the camera and I start snapping. It's, it's fine. Everything's working. And I'm I'm a little stumped at this point because battery drain is something that's rapidly and often reported. Ooh, now, now let me just interrupt. What you're describing isn't battery drain because if it had drained the batteries, it wouldn't have started up. So we're talking about something more unusual. Absolutely. And it's almost like everything was frozen and just made inoperable. And so, I, you know, I just remember thinking to myself, um, you know, I wrote down you know, that everything was back online, but 
I had made the decision to change the batteries anyway. Um, I didn't like the fact that they had gone down. So I'm unscrewing the back of the tri-fuel meter to change those batteries. And that's when I started to feel uneasy. And when I say started, it was gradual, but it wasn't a slow graduality. It was, you know, just something I felt coming. And I remember turning around and asking uh, everyone, it's like, does anyone else feel like they're being watched or, you know, and I said, I don't mean from up there and I mean from down here. And the minute I got that out, that's when I felt this absolute gripping fear. And, you know, we went from excited, like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. And, you know, knowing what we need to do next was, you know, investigate, take care of our equipment and now test and continue to see if we have scientific readings to every single cell of my body absolutely felt like it had been terrorized. It's just, it's so hard to describe, Mike, but I just remembered this grip. And at this point, I remember turning and running. As I turned, I also noticed the secondary investigator and the witness doing exactly the same thing at the same time. We all turned and just started hauling butt. And, and so, so I want to ask about this, this sensation of fear because um, I have been doing a lot of uh, talking with people who claim the abduction phenomena and what you're describing is, is something I hear all the time. I've heard it described all the time. I've, I have a, a, an event where I was with someone else. We were in a tent um, and both of us woke up uh, experiencing that sense of fear. Now, I, I, one of my jobs is to work outside in, uh, in the mountains. I've spent, I don't know how many years of my life, you know, many, many years of my life sleeping outside in a tent. So this is very normal for me to sleep out. This happened, this also surprisingly happened in 2010 in May. What, what month was this that this happened? Uh, it was May. So great. So we both experienced the same at one point. I could probably figure out the date exactly if I looked at my calendar a little bit. But um, so yes, we we uh, you and I have experienced in May of 2010 what what I suspect is a very similar reaction, whether that's an emotional reaction, a physiological reaction, a psychic reaction. I don't know how to best describe it. Now, what I felt, it felt like. Um, it it felt like say some mad scientist had a zillion dollars to to uh, to throw into some some crazy project okay and they invent a fear gun and it looks like a little uh, broadcaster it looks like a little uh, like a little speaker let's say and it felt like this mad scientist was standing outside the tent and um, he had a little you know a knob right and he just flipped that knob from zero to ten. In as fast as he could turn his little hand, and and this it sent out like psychic rays that that and this is obviously you know just a way to describe it, but it sent out some sort of psychic rays that thrust both me and the person who was in the tent with me into a sense of fear that I can only describe as almost synthetic, like it didn't it didn't I couldn't quantify it in any normal way. Um, I've uh, like if if a grizzly bear had ripped through the tent and put it to it put its jaws around my neck. I don't think I would have been as scared as I was at that moment, feeling it's, this synthetic fear. 
Yeah, and synthetic is a good word. I always describe it as it was fight or flight times a thousand, but you didn't feel it just in your gut, heart, or mind. You felt it in every cell of your body. And, you know, it's something I honestly wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. It's just nothing. It's it's violating. It's horrible. It was horrible. And that sense of fear wasn't even a dread attached. It was complete instinct at that point. Yes, this is interesting. And I've heard people... Um, say use the term soul shattering or soul crushing, which you know almost implies like a different level of like it's not just you know it's not just you're worried about your physical body you're actually working worried about being like evaporated into the cosmos in a way that would that would extinguish you f- for eternity. I know these I'm using sort of grand terms, but I don't know how else to describe it. No, and it was a a bravado moment. It was epic. It was something that I, you know, personally have a hard time describing that type of fear, but that's exactly, um, you're exactly right. It, it's just soul crushing is probably the difference between fight or flight that, you know, affected. It was the first time in my soul I was terrified. Yes. Okay. Yeah. No, I agree. Now I've actually been th- thinking about getting hypnotic regression for this event. And, and quite honestly, I don't want to relive that fear. It's the only reason I haven't done it either. And I'm more than willing, uh, you know, lie detector tests, anything like that. I've always been good to go. I've always been, yep, you got it. I will not do regression. I do. I will not purposefully um, go back to that fear. I, I can't. Okay. Now, so the, the, w- at the culmination of all this, you know, in the aftermath, you did go in and interview the witnesses. Did they describe something similar? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's really, um, I, I call it kind of ruined lives. Uh, you know, I'm the only one left really talking about this case. And I, and I'll be honest with you, Mike, I don't like to very often. And it's not that I'm, I'm afraid or anything like that. It's just, um, we're, we're still trying to figure out what happened out there, but you know, that secondary investigator, why don't you hear from her? She left ufology. She left everything. And, you know, which is why I also don't give out her name. I, you know, uh, some people know what it is and I always wish that they respect that she has stepped out for, you know, tragic reasons and that I assume are tragic. You know, I, I didn't talk to her. I don't know why she completely left ufology, but you know, completely dropped off the grid. I'm talking Facebook gone, everything gone. And this was a girl as devoted to foes and this field as I was. So, you know, and the witnesses that, you know, we'll describe later in the aftermath, you know, what happened there. But I, I'm really the only one left talking about it openly. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is so, so, um, this is when I, you know, when people sort of say like, oh, gee, like, you know, I want to see a UFO or gee, like I want to be abducted, you know, like I'm like, ooh, man, this is you're, you're opening a Pandora's box of, of psychic weirdness that um, that, you know, can be crippling. So, I'm, you know, like I, I almost I, I, you know, I've heard people say that to me um, and uh, 
you know, this is when people talk about disclosure, like, or actually the difference between disclosure and they're here. I think that there's something different where people like in the disclosure movement will say, you know, our space brothers are going to arrive someday. And I'm like, oh man, we may not be able to be in the same <laughs> room with our space brothers because it might just, you know, send us into madness. Right. Or, you know, just the technology being, you know, the control, you know, and if this was extraterrestrial, and I'll explain that comment later, if this event was extraterrestrial, you don't want anyone having that kind of power on you. And of course, it's why we all hate the military complex and, you know, CIA and some of these black ops, because they do things in secret to control the public. And I believe the one gift that we have from God personally is our agency. We have a choice. We have a say in if we want to do this or not. And I think one of the fears of an extraterrestrial presence in this earth, especially made known, is that what if they were capable of doing that? Well, they certainly are. Now, we'll... uh... Let's just let's talk about this a little because one of the things that I sense about this fear sensation is that um, you know it could be like the mad scientist with a with a little with a little you know fear gun, right? So like they they may be able to control it on a dial. Um, I don't know if that's true. Another thought is that their their presence is is somehow on a different vibratory level and i'm using i hate using the term vibrations because it sounds like uh, i'm going to start playing flute music and wearing a and wearing a robe and hang out in sedona um but uh but something about the actual presence the actual uh physical closeness of something so strange that may not be able to efficiently jive with our reality i don't know how else to say it that it that we sense that at a at an almost molecular level and 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 it is it is not a pleasant sensation Uh, absolutely and these are the questions um you know before this event i always thought the same thing oh man i'd love to see this and you know it answers so many questions and you know, because to this day, I enter each case with a skepticism because we have to. And we have to keep these investigations honest. And the hardest thing to do was to see what we saw and realize it just gave me 50 more questions. I got no answers. As a matter of fact, I've got, I would love to sit down and, and, and just really talk to people about the questions I have to see if they have answers. And and what I am doing in this podcast series is exactly that. I am, I have been confronted with so many questions and I've, I've, I'm, I've made the decision to publicly, you know, in this public forum, you know, where I put this stuff online um, to go through my own sort of soul searching and to, and to go through my own um, trying to deal with these issues uh, by asking the questions. I don't know if anyone will have an answer, you know, uh, and, and I, if, if someone did have an answer, I probably wouldn't believe them anyway. But um, uh, so, so it, I also want to say thank you so much for, for, you know, like I meant it when I said thank you for, for saying yes to this interview, because I recognize this is a tough subject. But for me, um, like you can't honestly investigate the totality of the, of the phenomena without, you know, going down these, these avenues in, in, and uh, trying to make sense of these, these, you know, the 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 strange within the strange of these reports. 
Absolutely. Hey, so so when we last so there you 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 asked everyone, do you sense something? Do you feel something? And then the next <laughs> thing that happened is you're you're running in the dark. Yeah, we're running like scared little girls, man, and it's embarrassing actually to have to admit that. You know, I'm a UFO investigator and I'm kind of a tough cookie. Not even and here we are running like friggin' maniacs at what now had had to have looked comedic. I mean, you know, all of us just hauling as fast as we could. And I remember being very aware that the witness was in front of me and he had a flashlight. Thank goodness, because I didn't. And it's very, very dark. And he's just running. I'm right behind him and we're just hauling. And when I say hauling, I was surprised at how fast my body was carrying me and, and, and pleasantly surprised we were getting to that truck that fast. But we're just running, 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 and all of a sudden he stops. And I hit him so hard. I honestly don't know how we maintain standing, honestly. And the flashlight was in his left hand. And I just heard him say, what the F was that? And he turned the flashlight, and honestly, it landed right on this little being. Okay, now, now keep going. I want to hear every detail you can possibly give me about this. How far away was it? Like six feet away, which oh. shocked the crap out of me because, like, we didn't know anything else. Nobody heard anything. Nobody said run. Nobody said what was that. You know, as far as I know, even at this time, and, of course, later on through further investigation and interviews, you know, nobody heard anything. And here's this thing. In the middle of this cornfield, six feet away from us. And I remember really being shocked at how close it was. The second, the, and really the first impression I remember thinking was, oh my God, that is not the cute little Roswell alien. You know, I guess in my head, seeing something like that, I don't know why that popped in. It's just what I thought. And the second thing that struck me was how absolutely tiny his legs were and it didn't make sense. And I think my psyche focused on that because at this point and through my investigations and seeing pictures of so-called extraterrestrials and, you know, um, extraterrestrial biological beings, you know, I, the strangest thing about it were the legs. They were twig-like to the point I knew they could not support his body. Now, of course, after further examination, we understand that most likely it was the angle of the flashlight that we just didn't see the whole part of the leg, but they were so shockingly frail and tiny that that just stood out. For some reason, that's what hit me the hardest. Okay, now we spoke about this just uh, on the telephone um, going back about a week ago. And you gave me some details from this case. And I remember when you said it was six feet away, I, I almost dropped the phone. I was like, oh, my God. That, I mean, on one level, it's fascinating. On another level, on another level it's terrifying. Well, you know, and, and to see something that close. I mean, you know, when he said, what the F was that and, and moved his flashlight, I don't remember thinking. I mean, at this point, we're just reacting. And um, it was just a blind terror. So... You know, it's something that we got into later, why he stopped and how he thought he saw it. And, of course, we're running. So, you know, his left arm, that flashlight's kind of all over the place, up and down, swinging up and down, up and down. And he 
thought he saw something standing there. And that's when he stopped. And you think in that blind terror, he would have kept going. So that's another thing that brings up big questions. Why did he stop? Yes. And, and did he have an answer for that? No. No. Okay. And whatever there's, you know, who knows? I mean, yeah, this right. is. Well, because when that flashlight hit him, the other thing that I didn't think about right at that moment, of course, but, you know, as the investigation went on and the debriefs we took after, it didn't move, Mike. I mean, you went from complete, absolute darkness in that cornfield and you know what a rural area is like. It's unlike a darkness that you'd ever get in a subdivision or, you know, a normal town. Sure. It is so dark. And that flashlight smacked him right in the face and nothing, no movement, no glitch. Um, There was nothing about the behavior when we looked at it that indicated it was alive. So although it looked very biological, the reactions of that kind of startled me. And it also brings up the other question. Is it a drone? Are they biological? What was it in the field? What I can tell you is that it looked very biological, but it didn't move a finger. It didn't twitch. It just was there like a statue. Now, can you so like go ahead and describe it as best you can? I mean, what? what it was did- about three and a half feet. Um, the coloration of it was, you know, kind of a light gray. It wasn't the cute little Roswell alien is kind of how I described because it didn't have those big black almond eyes. Um, it actually looked more sinister. And I'm not saying it was, but the eyes, the way the eyes look, they were more human, although not human. And I think that's what made it look a little more sinister. You know, the forehead was big. Um, the other thing is I, I never saw anything like a zipper or a collar um, or to indicate any kind of clothing. It just was a being. Um, I saw nothing that made it male or female. I saw, um, you know, didn't really see its hands, um, saw its legs, which were so completely um, off that no way they could have held him up. And that's just what I remember seeing. You know, there wasn't any hair, um, you know, no speaking, just a little slit for a mouth, the nose, you know, pretty much all the same features as what you would, uh, we've seen uh, decade after decade after decade reported to us. Um, I just remember the eyes not being at all what I thought they would look like. And and uh, were they the you know with the, the the typical gray with the giant almond eyes is described with these liquidy black eyes? Were there pupils? Was it like a human eye in that sense? I didn't see a pupil. Um, and you have to realize that when we stopped and saw this, and and I'll do this for the audience's sake, it was one one thousand two. That's it. And the time it took to say that was the time that flashlight was on that being after we stopped to the point where we turned away and ran again. That memory is completely seared in my brain. I wish sometimes it would go away, but it doesn't. And honestly, the eyes, I don't remember seeing a pupil or color or, you know, the liquid. I just remember more the shape. And I wish I could be better about that. And, and again, that's the point where people are like, well, we could get more detail if we could put you under. And 
I don't want to revisit that fear. Oh yeah, I understand that. Now I also um I uh one of the things that I can do when I and I'm very skilled at is I could play the role of uh you know, play sketch artist for something like this. Uh, I, I would love that. That is something I've always wanted to do and you know, Mike, I, I like I said, I wear uh many different hats right now and I'm so busy, but that is something that one day I would really like to accomplish. Yeah, I'm still sort of thunderstruck that at bo- uh, both of our occasions, both of these events for us took place in May 2010. Um, yeah, and I have a separate witness with that too. So, um, and she is very much still involved in the in the in the um, you know UFO research. And I will also say that she shares uh, what I can only describe as highly probable abduction experiences in her life. So, um, you know, her and I both share that. And, uh, so that, that's another sort of detail with my own experience. Um, okay. So, so you, I, so after the one, after you see it for the one second, um, you continue running. Yes. Uh, we took off again. Uh, we all jumped in the truck. And then, so seven people jumped, jumped in the truck. No, no, no. This was just the three of us again. Okay. Now where were the other four? I don't know. Uh, That's when I don't know when they left. I do know that they left because they wanted to chase that triangle. Oh, okay. So, so it was only you three in the field. Okay. So clear enough. I got that now. So when you said the little comedy, uh, you know, thing, if, if someone was, uh, you know, had night vision glasses and they were standing at the edge of the field, they would have all seen you sort of, you know, jump like the three stooges and start sprinting. Absolutely. And what's even worse was, um, the secondary investigator. Now, when I say uh, a truck, this truck was very high on, the, I guess, their lift kits or something. But um, the secondary investigator could not climb into the doorway. <laughs> so when I say comic, I, you know, this is something that we giggled about before. But she's trying to get up. That witness came right behind her, you know, kind of gave her a little shove up into that truck, and then I'm right behind her. He's running. It's just crazy. And then you see us, like, bailing out, and, you know, cornfields aren't nice and flat, so we're bouncing all over the place in this truck. At one point before we hit the road, I'm telling you guys, we were getting out of there so fast. We took air, uh, landed on the road uh, about a mile away, ended up in his driveway. And it wasn't until we got out of the truck at this point that you realize, oh my gosh, that fear is starting to wane. You know, I, I don't feel it as gripping or every cell or that blinding. And then you realize the further we got away from there, um, the less we felt it. And as fast as it came upon us, it left that fast. Okay, so, this is this is very fascinating because this almost implies that, you know, that there is something like a... a, a, a a radiation or a something radiates some sort of some sort of energy or or interference pattern or something is actually radiating from the 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 presence of these entities um, i honestly um i honestly believe with all my heart and my personal conclusion is what happened to us out there was put upon us whether it was extraterrestrial military experimentation, our government. I don't know who did it. All I know is that was definitely what happened. So put upon you meaning it was like it was like an arranged, like that was the purpose of going in the field to experience this this uh, intensity? 
Um, no, I think put upon us as in, I can't go that far yet, although I will explain that later. Um, honestly, at this point, whatever happened to us was um, forced upon us. It was an environment created to make us feel that way. Yes, okay. Okay. As opposed to, um, you know, uh, it just happening by accident, just happening by, you know, like they can't control it, almost as if like they're projecting a pheromone that they project yeah. organically no matter what, and you are reacting to that. So just being – so it's different than just being in their presence being complicated and, and creating these intense emotions, but it was more that that they were choosing to broadcast these intense emotions in a way uh, so that it would have the desired effect on you. We all kind of felt afterwards, um, and we didn't know this for about two weeks, because the one thing when we got back to the driveway that we all knew is we could not talk about the details, because now the investigators just became witnesses, and we cannot compare stories, and, you know, we needed to keep this investigation as clean as possible, and so that's something I didn't realize after, but every, everybody did agree on one thing. And that was, um, we were supposed to leave that field for whatever reason. Uh, somebody needed to do something. We were in their way. Uh, something else was going to happen. We weren't supposed to witness whatever the reasons were. We were supposed to leave that field. We could, weren't supposed to stay and they did everything they could to get us out of there. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. Okay, so you get back to your your the the, the truck. Uh, you did just arrive back to their to their farmhouse. Yeah, and you know we get out and nobody's saying anything. Nobody said anything on the the drive back. Um, and I think I was the first one that just kind of kind of busted out laughing a little, and it was more of a giggle or a nervous giggle or I don't know what it was, but that's what happened. And you know I just looked at everybody. Um, I'm looking at the secondary witness. I'm looking at the witness. I'm looking around and I just kind of leaned back on a wall and I just started giggling. I'm like, what the hell was that? And, you know, and then everybody kind of giggled for a minute. And then the secondary investigator grabbed her phone. Uh, I believe she was either calling it a joiner, uh, which is a journalist that she was very close to. Um, that's very much at that time involved in UFO reporting or she was calling the state director and to let him know that we had just become either way, both phone calls were made. <laughs> I just don't know which one came first. And, you know, and at this point that's when the witness came up and you know, he kind of dropped down to like a knee and he's just like, Oh my God, Chase, thank you so much for coming. Did you, you, you saw that, right? You saw that. And he, he's kind of, I want to say melting down a little bit, but I think he's just so emotional because honestly, Mike, at that moment, that's when I realized how important our role was to these witnesses. We weren't, I wasn't his wife that would be like, yeah, honey, I saw it too. You're, you're not crazy. Or, you know, his cousins that were chasing things or, you know, to him, we were the unbiased witnesses. We were the professionals. We were the people that, had information about the UFO phenomena that now could give him answers. Uh, he was so relieved that just people other than his family or neighbors had had witnessed this as well. And the relief was very apparent. 
But then he said something that kind of struck me because he's like, you know, you saw this, right? He's like, then he says, what do they want? And my first thought was they, I only saw one, you know, and at this point, um, you know, he asked me what I saw. He, you know, he, he's like, you know, you saw that, right? What was it? That's how he put it. And knowing we couldn't compare stories yet, knowing we had to maintain the integrity of this investigation, I just said, uh, it was real. And, you know, and he understood exactly at that point that I had seen what he saw even though I couldn't say anything more. Wow. Um, so just like what was involved in, in saying goodbye? Oh, here, like one more question. Did the, did the secondary investigator, it was you and the witness that, that were running and he had the flashlight, but did the secondary investigator see the being? Uh, no. And we didn't know this for a couple weeks after, believe it or not. Um, because again, we weren't comparing stories because we immediately called the state director who was making plans to meet us immediately the next morning. So, or the next day. And that's something that we were very smart in doing. So we hadn't compared notes. So I didn't know for about two weeks after that she never saw it, but it makes sense because when I started turning to run, I saw her do the same thing and we're running. Um, what didn't occur to me until later is how much closer to the truck she was than the witness and I. So she was already past the being, you know, but. Um, okay. Okay. So, so then, then um, what was the actual, just like, so you left the, the farmhouse. Well, at this point we go, we'll go back. Cause you know, I'm looking around, I'm thinking, there was something in that field. There's physical evidence. There's footprints. You know, we need to get back there because sensibilities uh, were returning and the investigator mode was coming back on. And it wasn't time to sit down, compare notes and, you know, kumbaya, guys. You know, we don't have a martini shot here. We need to go further and get back in that cornfield. We were back in that field within 30 minutes. And that's when we saw one more strange anomaly and that was we decided to pull the truck back kind of in a tree line so we were a little more clandestine and not so open a lot of that probably has to do with the fact that we just saw something in that field and the fact that it was so close to us and we had no idea we're going to stay in the truck now we did get out tons of footprints you could see everything that we had done and this was at night you could still see all this well yeah because we have lights we have flashlights so as we're walking around you know, it's very clear what we can see. And and all the gear was obviously, you, you didn't run with that? Oh, no, no. That was all out there, yeah. Okay. So that was all collected and, you know, but... And, and what was your sense there? Did you have any sort of residual fear? Obviously, you know, the, you're oh, describing something profound before. What was your emotional sense? It was completely gone. You know, completely gone. And I'm right back into investigation mode. You know, a lot of those residual uh, feelings or memories really even to this day only come up when I'm alone and quiet. I, the best way to describe it is I've had a few opportunities where I'm driving back from say Kentucky. I live in Georgia now and that long drive home is when, you know, your mind kind of wanders and you kind of go back to that place and 
you start to feel that a little. And then it's, you know, I literally have to stop the vehicle, step outside, get fresh air. I turn on a little pit bull and Jennifer Lopez and I just forget about it and go home. <laughs> okay. Um, what, uh, what went on in the aftermath of all this? Well, the aftermath was we, we pulled it in and the secondary investigator, you know, points out and she's like, oh, my gosh. She says, is that a light? And we look and in the tree line, you could see a yellowish ball or orb. I hate that word orb, but a ball of light uh, completely illuminated, self-illuminated. So nothing was shining on it. It was illuminated itself. And it was kind of going through the trees in the tree line. It was about the size of a basketball. And we watched it literally ascend out of the tree line, kind of hover over it for a moment, and then wobble off. Now, as crazy as it sounds, I look at her, she looks at me, we're done. We've had enough. I I can't even explain that where other investigators would have been like, I would have stayed out there for a week and you had to be there. We oh, were done. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I, yeah, I don't, I understand completely. Yeah. It was time to go home. Um, my, my brain had enough. My, my whole body had had enough. And, you know, so we document everything. We do our paperwork and then we drive home. As we're driving home, you'd think that we'd be like, you know, chatty caddies. Oh my God, can you believe it? We did a little when it came to like the triangle and, it's almost like once we got done with, oh, my gosh, that tri- like, can you believe what we saw tonight? And then we went silent for the rest of the ride home. It was a long ride. And we didn't talk again. We met the state director who interviewed uh, all of us, you know, and the events. Thank goodness. And then the uh, chief investigator, Max Mitchell of Tex- uh, Tennessee, uh, came out, I think it was like two weeks later, and he also independently interviewed all involved. And it was shortly after that, um, you know, I went up a couple more times to visit with the witness and do a little more study, research, try to collect some more evidence, getting some soil samples, you know, little things like that. And it was at this point that his wife, who is always very sweet, very supportive, but always stood back, just like his cousins. You know, they were very clear on reports they were giving us. They didn't want involved in the process because the one thing I promised them is that this would not turn into a circus. You weren't going to have 15 cars pulling up and, you know, all this activity. And that was something I had to stay true to. So everything was done very low-key. But the last time I was up there, uh, the wife pulled me aside And she said, Chase, thank you so much. You have been so helpful, Um, you know, but my, you know, you have to remember her husband's out chasing these things with his cousin every night. He's obsessed with UFO phenomena. Um, He wants answers. You know, everything's kind of crazy for her. So what she said was, you know, asked me if I was a wife and mom. And of course, he answered yes. And she said, Chase, I really appreciate everything you've done but I never want to see you up here again. <laughs> like, really? It, it, oh, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. So She was that blunt, but she's like, and she says, and I don't mean that to offend you. She says, I mean that because I have, I need time to bring my family back. 
And I can't do that with you coming up here and continuing to feed my husband's obsession. So at this point, you got to stand back and realize as hungry as we were as UFO investigators to finish this, their lives were completely turned upside down and mama's not happy. And so that's when she said, if you can answer these questions, Chase, that would be great. And then she says, can you tell me what they, what they are? No, ma'am, I cannot. She said, can you tell me what they want? No, ma'am, I can't. Can you stop it? And I knew what she was saying. Okay, then I've been coming up here for about, I've been involved with this family. Their whole lives have been turned upside down. And what they needed from us, we can't give them. So leave them alone. They want their privacy back. You know, there's, you know, neighbors are starting to talk about what's all those people doing at your house and what are you guys doing down there in the cornfield? And, you know, it's a small town. And, you know, I agreed with her. I totally understood. And I would be the same way. There comes a point when you have to realize what's best for your family. And if we couldn't stop it and we couldn't answer their questions, then we needed to let them get back to a normal situation. Um, And she gave me a hug. This was not personal at all. She was very sweet. We got along very well. She really did appreciate it. But she had had enough. And her family was suffering. And I understood that. So now what happens is I hear from the witness every now and then. Um, It's less and less frequent. Um, It used to be, you know, little phone calls. Then we leave each other little messages. And then it's text messages. And now it's definitely to the point where, like, he'll send a little text. Hey, just making sure this is still your number and I can reach you. And I'm like, yeah, we're good. And Or I'll send a little message out, you know, saying the same thing. Um, I think it's important to him that he knows he can contact me, but he's got to leave it alone. And so we have not talked about if there's anything else going on up there or, you know, anything like that. So that's really where the case lies now. And and have you done any sort of follow-up? I mean, in the interactions with the witness, um, has there been any change in his spirituality or his or his sense of reality or, or uh, in... Very, very private about that stuff. And it was, you know, after Mama put her foot down and we don't talk anything about, you know, it really is just making sure that we each have each other's current information. So... It's um, it's difficult, but I have nothing really like that. I can tell you afterwards, uh, he was he was energized by this information. He was on a quest. His family was almost suffering and almost hurt. Um, they needed to get back. He's very prominent in his community, um, which is another reason I promised to keep it confidential. And to this day when he knew I was going to come out and talk about this, because at first I didn't, because I needed to figure out how I could be honest about what happened, but also maintain complete confidentiality for this family, which I will continue to protect with everything I have. So um, very interesting, yeah, but... uh. So, so as far as the event itself, any sense of missing time? Oh, my gosh, Mike. 
Okay, so there was a point in the garage where, you know, things were settling down, we're getting ready to go back out there. And I had that moment where it's like, oh my God, what time is it? And because of everything that happened, you know, I really, really was afraid to look. And I grabbed my cell phone. I looked at the time. It actually took like a couple seconds to register. And I'm like, oh, thank freaking goodness. It's exactly the time it should have been. But there was a little panic moment. <laughs> it really was. Okay. I mean, I, you understand why what that, that seems like a very appropriate question to ask. So yeah. um, good. Well, so uh, now um, f- the witness himself, um, is there any sense that he had experienced missing time in any previous events? Um, that is something that I was exploring. I do also believe that his family, especially his children, um, have experienced some very extraordinary events and could possibly have been contactees or abductees. And I say this because there are little indicators like a 15-year-old son who is every much, you know, like his dad, that, you know, he, he they run in this neighborhood. My kids can't ride their bike anywhere they want, but in this town and in this area, they go all day on their own, playing in the woods, doing whatever. And this 15-year-old boy wouldn't sleep in his room. The children would not go upstairs. And where were they sleeping? uh, Downstairs on the couch. They would not go up in their rooms at night, any time at night, and they definitely would not be in their beds. Um, so very telling. Okay. That's, I don't, I mean, we don't know any answers and I know this would be ridiculous for me to try to assume something, but, um, you know, that is a very interesting bit of information. I did. And I had suspicions and, you know, at one point I did bring this up to, uh, the witness and, and asked him and the immediate reaction of him was, Oh no, nothing like that's going on. Yeah, we got this, you know, it's just, you know, crazy little buoyant. He wasn't, not only not ready, um, and after everything he had just seen, including sending me pictures he was taking from the bedroom window of these lights coming up to the window, um, he he couldn't go there. He absolutely, you know, the minute I brought up anything like that, so I left that alone. I you know wrote in the notes that I had a suspicion about this, but until they ask for that help or want to talk about it or even want to explore, I had to leave that alone. Okay. This, the, nothing, everything you're saying doesn't surprise me. In fact, if you had answered any differently, I would have, that would have seemed odd. Um, so now for you, um, any, this is something that I, that I think that should be part of the MUFON uh, field investigators, like little checklist. I think that they should go back to people who have had these experiences a year later or two years later and then, and then go through a series of questions. And the questions I would, but I guess I'm asking you right now are what changes has it made in you? I, I think I tried to make this positive. It's definitely made me a better investigator. Uh, I identify with contactees and people who feel they've been abducted. There's, Certain, and you'll understand what I'm saying, Mike, there's a certain sense or camaraderie or instant, I don't know, that, I don't know, when, when you get these stories and you start listening, there's, there's something about 
the relationship, even if it's brand new, I just met you, um, that you feel connected somehow. That's very strange to me. Um, the other thing that's strange is that I don't have nightmares or anything like that. I, I just want to know what happened out there. If it's extraterrestrial, that's awesome. That's what I want to, that's what I do. But I'm not so sure because there's also another aspect of me as an investigator that I have to question. And that is my husband is active duty. We lived on a military base. We were in housing because we were there temporarily. You know, the government knows, the Navy knows what I do. I'm very public. I call them out. I speak my mind. I'm very truthful. They, it's very possible they knew we were going to be in that field. They can't tell me to stop talking because by silencing me would create a much bigger stir than anything I'm saying. You know, it's kind of like I preach to the choir, like our radio shows, who listens to us, people that are interested in these topics. But if they shut me up, you know, so I don't know. Uh, somebody posed to me, do you think the military is capable of trying to scare you out of your field? Well, shoots, they did everybody else. I'm the only one standing. So but but I, you don't know whether it was the military. Right. Or the government. You yeah, know, or the government or some faction of the government or secret government or any, you know, any way you want to try to describe this elusive, you know, yeah, hidden faction. So, I know it sounds crazy, but we have to consider that these things are possible. So, you know, it's why to this day I've never said I saw an extraterrestrial being. I saw an alien. I call it a being because although every indication and everything I witness is exactly what we've been told before, again, I have no proof of what that was. So I'm trying to stay very legit as an investigator because if you allow yourself down these rabbit holes, your objectivity goes away. In other words, I want it to be true. I need that answer so badly. I'm going to find it whether it's really there or not. So a lot of my struggle has been to absolutely just tell the truth, let it go. And I think that was the difference between me able to still do this and not. I, I just look at it like, okay, well, it's on the back burner, and I keep gathering information, but I didn't let it, um, I, I, I really on just drop it, like any other case that has been most interesting. You know, Mike, I, I'm sure you've worked a few cases where you get so wrapped up in what's happened to them that you kind of lose sight of, wait a minute, I'm not really helping them, I'm more of that ally at this point you know it's like i completely embedded in their experience yes i can see that now the so my it's more for me personally it's it's me struggling with my own set of experiences trying to make sense of them um though i i, I know exactly what you're saying yeah um, and it's that sense where you really you've got to maintain and and compartmentalize where this needs to stay as i continue the pursuits because I love the skeptics. I love the people that look at me and say, really, Chase? Because what I say to them next is, no, for real. I swear, you guys, I left that cornfield and, and to this day, my impression leaving this incident is, what the hell was that? Come on. 
nobody gets everything in one night. Little dancing lights, friggin' triangle, a being in the middle of the field. Oh, not just a being, six feet away from us. Little, you know, orby lights coming at, come on. Either we were in the absolute right place at the right time, or that was the best hoax or, you know, I don't even know, but it, yeah, I just still leave with that. Come on, really? Now the the complications of this being a hoax, you know, uh, you know, we could explore for, for 10 hours. It it would be hard for me to, there's no way over the telephone call like this. I could, I could even, you know, come to any kind of conclusion though. What I can say, you know, the long list of things you've, you've shared with me, some of which I've, I've experienced myself and then, um, you know, there's, you know, I, and some of the things I've heard. So there's nothing you haven't said that I haven't heard already in some form or another. Um, it is shocking that they're all glommed together in this one event. I mean, the implication is that it could have been orchestrated for your benefit, whether that, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I would doubt that it's been orchestrated by the, you know, factions of the government, though it certainly could have been orchestrated by the, the these mysterious entities. You know, and that's exactly the conclusions I've come to. One way or another, it was orchestrated, either this or that. And a hoax is absolutely out of the question. There's no way anybody could have pulled that off and fooled so many people for so long, including two seasoned investigators. No way. And, you know, the important thing to remember is all witnesses on what they personally experienced completely corroborate each other. And the stories have never changed. Uh, We presented this case, all of us, including secondary investigator. Um, The only thing is, is, you know, she was very honest and said, I didn't see a being. You know, she talks about feeling that fear and running, but that's, that's not a discrepancy. She was honest. And once you go out to that field and you examine where she was, where we were, where that being was, it made sense she wouldn't have seen it. So the fact that we were all completely 100% honest, this is a good case. It's a solid case. Unfortunately, like most UFO cases, we have no conclusion. And, and yeah, that that is a given almost. I don't. I've I've sort of abandoned coming to any kind of conclusion. You know, you can sort of speculate. You know, a lot of maybes and a lot of ifs. But um, yeah, I think you would be foolish to come to a conclusion. Now, here's a, did you at any point find little footprints in the spot where? Um, where the being may have been? No, not at all. And like I said, that's it's so frustrating because we do know that you know UFO investigators. We have tons of physical evidence. There's tons of things out there, um, things that have even been made public, and everybody's like, "Oh, okay," and they move on like it's no big deal. And you know, we found nothing, and it was very frustrating. You know, to because I am the forensic nuts and bolts investigator. So having all these experience, going back, knowing I knew we had it now, like there had to have been footprints, there has to have been some sort of evidence. And either the equipment was frozen and wasn't working, or there was nothing to find. I could even see where we stopped in our footprints, and there was nothing there. Now, this just, you know, whatever, this is, 
there's lots of different reports and lots of people have different claims. But one of the things that does get reported very commonly is that these little beings do not walk. They actually sort of levitate and hover um, in a way, you know, their movements, people describing them walking don't describe like a person walking. They describe someone or like a little entity on a little like invisible hovercraft. So, you know, they're the fact that you did not find footprints doesn't mean that the experience didn't happen. Let me put it that way. Well, it kind of pissed me off, I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, hey, just uh, I'm looking at the clock. Uh, one hour and 39 minutes we've been talking about this one case. Oh, my gosh. But, which is great, which is exactly what I wanted to do. So so um, is there anything else you want to share about this? I, if, I feel really great that we – from what I've got, it seems like we've covered this in a way – the way I wanted to cover it when I made this call to you. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I honestly think everything – yeah. Okay, everything. so – yeah, then, and once again, thank you. I recognize that this is emotional stuff, um, and and uh, and to me, what we've just shared, going going back and forth, is very valid. Ooh, let me just add one more thing. You talked about uh, feeling a camaraderie with people who've had this experience, and you even use the term contactees or you know abductees or experiencers. Um, <clears throat> I every year I go down to the uh, UFO conference that they they used to hold it in Laughlin, and now they're holding it in. Um, Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, I go down every year for this long format conference. It's almost a week long, specifically to to sort of um, be in that sphere, to have that camaraderie with people. I I am not really that concerned with the with the people who stand on the podium and give their their lectures. I'm much more concerned and drawn to the individuals, the, the, the people who have had similar experiences to my own. And I, and I find I depend on that and I need that. That camaraderie is palpable and it is very real from my experience. Yeah, and it's even, I don't know, like uh, I don't consider myself a contactee or um, an experiencer. I just don't. Um, I'm still an investigator. That's how I see myself, and that's kind of strange, isn't it? Not at all. Not at uh, all. No, honestly, so. I don't consider myself that. In fact, I tell people I'm not a contactee. I'm not an experiencer, and you know. And I've had people come out and say, uh, "Chase, you are," and I just don't feel that way. And to this day, one of the questions I have, Mike, is: Was that being responsible for that fear? Was it the triangle that just left our view? Was it something else? Was that being trying to contact us and that fear was because the answer was, oh, hell no. You know what I'm saying? Yep. So many different avenues that you could go on, why that being was even out there. And, you know, so that's why it's still such a big case and and I'm still sorting through it. And thank goodness, um, you know, you said MUFON really doesn't have, you know, the sensibilities to follow up on uh, investigators that, that see extraordinary things. And you're right. Absolutely. I'm so fortunate to have good friends. Steve Hudgens, that man called me at least once a week. You doing all right? You getting any nightmares? I mean, he's kind of a, a gruff guy, but he's, you know, a Texan. He's a Texas good old boy, and I just love him. And he would check. You know, he'd ask. And, of course, later on, you know, my friendship with, you know, Richard Dolan, Peter Robbins, uh, Race Hobbs, you know, all these people that have a lot of experience. 
experience in dealing with this. Of course, Peter being very valuable because he worked with Bud Hopkins for so many years. So, you know, it's, I'm really surrounded by great people, but I, I would like to see MUFON pay a little more attention to the help and well-being of their investigators and not that they haven't tried. I think things are much bigger than, you know, they focus on sometimes. And I'll tell you what that is. This is me talking. It's a guy thing. It's a male thing. I think women are much more uh, capable of being compassionate and being sensitive. And men are, um, you know, they are much more intimidated by those things. I, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it to the point where it may not be accurate. But um, well, we're not talking move on here then, right? Because probably one of the crashest um, – you know, person that I could have ever worked for was a female. You want to talk about cold, doesn't have very little experience in leadership and the UFO phenomena. That's who ended up my boss. And, you know, so I kind of felt just a little different, Mike. Talking to you and my friendship with you has yielded 10 times more compassion than I ever got from most of the females I've worked four in the past okay now now i'm just saying now when i say (laughs) when i say male i'm using the you know male and female i'm using almost the the caricature you know instead of the instead of i mean obviously like you know uh i have a like i'm very aware that i have a sort of a very feminine compassionate good listener side to my to my personality um uh you know in that you know that's not unusual but it isn't it isn't you know the, the caricature of the of the man is the guy who wants to go out in the field and and you know take a tape measure and measure the burn mark and then get right down on his hands and knees and and put a little uh you know of the toasted soil in that burn mark into a a, a little you know That's envelope <laughs> yeah and and uh, and then the woman caricature is the one who wants to sit with a witness and hold the hand and and you right, know and right. and you know hand him a hanky when they start to cry right. Um, so we jumped. So the couple of the things I wanted to talk about, and uh, one of them, which I, which I'm which we've covered, is the, the Tennessee 2010 case. I'm still baffled by the fact that both of us had the same event in Me May too. 2000. I want to get the. I will, I'll, I'm going to look up and get the date, and I'll get back to you on this. And and yeah, uh, and I want to confirm. Actually, a lot of the activity started in late April, but it was May. But when this happened, oh, I would love to compare those notes. Oh my gosh, Mike. Yeah, yeah. No, and I'll I'll tell you the story. Um, uh, the people who've listened to this podcast series have heard of me, you know, tell that story in the tent too many times. I don't need to bend their ear about it, no, but I will wait. bend it with you, bend your ear about it, uh, you know, in a separate call now. Um, so MUFON, so you, you were organized. So we don't have to the, talking about MUFON and your relationship with MUFON would be a bottomless pit. I think, I think we could go on for 10 hours and a lot of it would, would be, um, I don't want to say venting, but I think there's some real, very real issues to, to concern ourselves with. One of the things I will do, and and I told you this beforehand, is I'm going to put a link, and anyone listening to this who's made it this far, um, Jerry Pippin did a series called MUFON Under Siege, and he interviews you, he interviews Elaine Douglas, and I'm drawing a blank on the name, the uh, state director for MUFON, the former state director for MUFON oh, in uh, the state of Washington. What was his uh, name? It was uh, James Clarkson. James Clarkson, great. But in that series, he also uh, interviews the international director, Clifford Cliff, and several other people. And that's really important because it wasn't just, you know, these, you know, ex-MUFON members venting. 
you know, he, he really tried to find out like what some of this stuff was going on about. I mean, it was a good series. Yeah, and I'll recommend that highly because it is a complicated set of, uh, you know, he said, he said, she said kind of things, um, which is, you know, I don't want to make it sound like, you know, little kids getting into a fight on the playground. But, um, you know, what, what, it, what it unfolds is very telling. And I'm going to jump right to the conclusions I come away with is that somehow the entire organization of MUFON has been infiltrated and potentially co-opted by, uh, you know, I don't want to say the CIA or the military or anything, but by forces that have a separate agenda than the mission statement for MUFON. And that may be a small number of people, but I think it has had an impact. And, and um, you know, that, that it was, that's my conclusion. Mike, from- they've even admitted that. They have admitted uh, Clifford Cliff, Marie Malzahn, uh, you know, I've heard several of them say publicly. We, oh, we have absolutely, and they know they have. It's you know, this is a you know a, a well organized um, you know set program to get information from the general public about UFOs, and you know, if the government wants those, what what would they do? I mean, if they want to find out what's going on in the UFO community, you join the group. It's almost how they say it is if we weren't doing our job, they wouldn't care. So they almost wore it like a badge of honor. But, you know, nobody would ever deny if you ask them straight up, do you believe MUFON has ever been infiltrated or continues to have, you know, members in it that don't have the, they'll tell you yes. Um. Yes. Okay. This is fascinating. Now, I'm, I'm quite good quite close with Elaine Douglas and, and uh, I've heard her side of it, you know, personally, as well as her, what I thought was a very good interview that she did with um, Jerry Pippen. And, um, you know, the here, I'm going to just read a statement from Clifford Cliff. And this came from March, 2010. And, and he said, um, if they, in the earlier in the statement, he was talking about the CIA, it's kind of a long statement. So, but he's implying the CIA, if they, the CIA, have infiltrated MUFON to discover what we know about UFOs. That is silly. Everything MUFON has on UFOs can be obtained from the Internet or our website. Now, I've dug through that website. I do not feel that everything MUFON uh, has is on that website. I mean, obviously, the, 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 the reports that are online, as far as I can tell, seem only the, to be the reports that get filled out by a witness on a on a on a on their site, you know, it, you know, I'm sort of reading first person narratives. Maybe they are a paragraph long, and that's all that I can uncover on their site. Well, and that there it is again. You know, that's kind of the problem, and it's the PR problem. Mufon continues with. Do I believe Mufon is a horrible organization? Absolutely not. I worked for them for many many years. I was a member of Mufon in, in 1996 to 2010 or 11 and I got to tell you it broke my heart leaving I loved them I loved being the star team manager it was the best job I ever had in my life and leaving it was without a doubt one of the hardest decisions I ever had to make and you know it was very very difficult but that's the PR problem is that MUFON continues to put out statements and then 
all anyone has to do is ask a question and go look for themselves and they find a very different picture. That's what I experienced and that's what I continue to hear. Yes. And, and, um, uh, you know, I see, this is, I'm going to, this is going to sound kind of, you know, I'm, I'm caricaturing again, but I see MUFON as a bunch of old men that are out of touch or they have some agenda that, that is very different. You know, I'm 50 years old and I feel like I am a freaking baby in this field. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? I feel like everyone is, you know, a lot older than I am. Uh, uh, and the, uh, you know, I just, I just sense that there is, you know, it's a bunch of old white men who are out of touch with, with what is going on. Just the fact that, um, uh, it seems like MUFON, I don't want to say ignores, but the, the abduction phenomena is not, you know, central on their radar. Let me put it that way. Oh, absolutely. And we, you know, we have said this for many times and, you know, if you look, the people that they got rid of, were the aggressive? Oh, sorry, my dog. Oh, that's okay. Uh, you know, the people that they ended up uh, releasing and getting rid of were the ones that were heavily embedded, asking tough questions, and really doing some big work. And, and, Elaine Douglas is one example of where she was putting out that JAR uh, Journal of Abduction Research, um, you know, focusing directly on the complications and the strangeness of the abduction phenomena. Absolutely. And, you know, if she was doing a good job with that. Now, if they were unhappy with something else, they did not tell her before she was gone. Marilyn Carlson, if they were unhappy with her, she wasn't brought in on that. Uh, Leslie Varnicle, uh, you know, and people think that this was all just a bunch of us and, you know, we all got booted. Move on. This is old news. These firings are still happening today. They just uh, got rid of the Oklahoma state director. He was stunned to get that letter. Well, you're not doing your job. Um, dude, have you seen MUFON statistics? Have you seen how many states don't even have a state director? You know, do you see how many states are behind in their investigations? You know, it just seems strange that they're still continuing these, you know, brutal, brutal internal investigations and, you know, booting people. They spend more time investigating each other than they did you know, out there in the field, in my opinion. And if and it's just like the simplest, I'm sure there's like a little playbook in, you know, in the, you know, somewhere in a file cabinet in the Pentagon that says, you know, how do you disrupt, you know, an organization, whether that be like hippie peace movement from the 60s or, or, you know, MUFON in the, you know, 2012 is, you know, you would, you would erode it from the inside. And- Absolutely. It's that divide and conquer. And if you talk, Talk to the members, um, and, and I know there are members out there. I'm still very good friends. I have not lost any of my friends in MUFON, and that's because they know I told the truth. I was honest. MUFON's never denied anything I've said, and they can't because I spoke the truth. Um, what, what has happened is there's distrust. Uh, people aren't sure what the agenda is anymore. People aren't sure where cases are going. There's just a lot of confusion and, and not a lot of trust. And, you know, for some members, they just let their membership go. Some have to make decisions to stay. Now, with everything we all know about MUFON, I don't think it's good for our UFO community that this organization fail. You know, we want to see MUFON continue. And although Elaine Douglas doesn't always have that cute little cheerleader persona. 
Oh, she's tough. Yeah, no, she does. She's, I would not call her a cute little cheerleader, I, but I do look to her for very straight, honest answers if I ask her a question. She wasn't but, wrong. I mean, you know, what the board of directors, if you listen to that interview that Clifford Cliff did, he fully states the only members of MUFON are the board of directors. Everyone else is a subscriber. Hello, how many people pulled their head out of the sand that with that statement? About 20. <laughs> you know, but everyone else chose to ignore it. What he you pay to be a member of MUFON. You're not a volunteer directly in the truest sense of volunteerism. You pay to be a member and a subscriber. And then you pay to be an investigator. And then you continue out of your own pocket to work cases and continue your education with very little support, information, training, and all of this. And, but never forget, you are defined by the international director and by the bylaws of MUFON. You're a subscriber. So when they say the membership has full access to, you know, what MUFON has, you know, these poor subscribers think they're going to go in and get to look at all these great, huge cases. And what they're going to find, that's not exactly true. They're not members. They're subscribers. Now, mid-management below, you know, calls everyone members. And, you know, this has nothing to do. My experience with MUFON were state directors, you know, the boots on the ground, the investigators, chief, state officer. They're amazing. They're hardworking people. Their heart's in the right place. But I found an element that had only been introduced to MUFON, you know, uh, what, three years before I got there, already in these humongous high positions, controlling everything, including what the board of directors um, got wind of, uh, how they heard it, and what opinion they should have behind it. That's how everything was delivered to them. Um, and that was my experience, including Clifford Cliff. I did not have direct access. MUFON's rapid deployment manager, deputy director of investigations, the person that was responsible for all Category 3s reported to MUFON. And Category 3 means? Uh, the, the most uh, complex and sensitive cases in MUFON. They're the biggest ones. They're the ones that either uh, uh, report evidence, trace evidence, physical evidence, or any kind of encounters, landings. These are your biggies. Did not have direct access to the international director. Everything I did had to go through Marie Malzahn. Period. Yes. Yes, it seems yeah this is this is very troubling to hear. Now here's another aspect of the entire thing that I find like I've never heard this mentioned and and I'll say it here like I've talked to a lot of members of MUFON and um you know one of the things I do is I mean I'm like I just go ahead and ask. I said, "Hey, are you do you have any direct experience?" and off you know they'll I've gotten a lot of honest answers with us say, "Yep, I'm an I'm an abductee." Um State directors, there's the state director, Bill Konkoleski, from the state of Michigan, who is very open that he is a he's, uh, an experiencer, uh, a, an abductee. I've talked to him on the phone. He's done interviews. He's written a book on it. He's got videos of him talking about his abduction experiences online. Um, you know, this to me is extremely – I mean, I cannot 
I don't I don't understand why this isn't fascinating that there are state directors who are abductees, and um, I just think that and and then the the actual organization seems to have been infiltrated by sort of you know forces that I will call nefarious. This this is the stuff of a of a of an X Files episode. I don't mean to be so dramatic, <laughs> but but you know what I'm saying. I do. And, you know, like I said, a lot of people are going to say, oh, this happened two years ago. This is old news. It's still going on. Everyone knows that because, you know, uh, we're still getting these stories. We're getting lack of information, you know. And but if you really, really take a hard look, MUFON doesn't say it owes the public everything. It doesn't say that, you know. So I think sometimes we want MUFON to give us everything and I think they should. It's a public organization. But, you know, I people just really need to pay attention on what they're supporting or whatever. And I have many friends that are still very devoted to MUFON, and that's okay. My stance leaving MUFON was I no longer am under anybody's thumb and control. Nobody can tell me what cases are important enough for me to listen to or don't talk to that person because they're crazy. I love being independent. Uh, it opened a whole world up, you know, a, a lot of more avenues. And I do believe that even Richard Dolan gave MUFON the best advice anyone has ever told them. And this was a couple years ago. He told them that unless they get on board with the Internet and, you know, more public awareness, I mean, more of that you know, where everything's going, YouTube, Facebook, you know, until they follow the technology, they're going to continue to have a lot of problems. And, you know, he was kind of escorted out. You know, if MUFON knows that there's people in their organization that are selling out, that's who they need to be getting rid of, not the people asking the questions and not the people like Chase that, you know, take it even a step further. Okay, CMS is awesome. You got a brand new CMS. Where is that, by the way? Because it's not in the home office. Ooh, describe what CMS is. Oh, the uh, case management system. That's where everything gets reported. So all that information that goes into that MUFON website, well, who is the webmaster and where is this CMS database kept? And and I will say that I've been I've spent oh. the last couple of days digging through the MUFON website and I am really disappointed. I mean, there's like, you know, junior high school chess clubs who have more advanced, you know, websites than, than what MUFON is putting out there. Yeah, they need, you know, and they've just changed leadership and we're all very hopeful. And this is the God's honest truth. We're all very hopeful that MUFON gets it together. They've got some bridges to rebuild. They even owe some people apologies, but none of us, even the ones that have been hurt or, not treated well or whatever by MUFON, don't want them to fail. This is not good for our community. And to this day, anything MUFON has needed from me as that outsider, they've gotten. We need to cooperate where we should. We need to help each other out because this isn't about um, Chase, Klitsky, or Mike becoming you know, UFO superstars. It has nothing to do with us. It's about those witnesses and the government cover-up and the information that we're, we should be allowed to have. So as long as we keep our eye on the community, 
which MUFON has forgotten to do, in my personal opinion. You know, they don't like MUFON members talking to me. I don't know why. I'm probably the least hostile to them. Everything I've said and done has been to help and reveal. But, you know, so I, you know, that's what's going to heal MUFON. MUFON's got to fix some mistakes, reorganize, and reach out to some of the people that are out here. Now, my behavior since I've left MUFON is the same thing. I'm still telling the truth. I'm still standing up for the little guy. I'm still protecting my witnesses. I'm still working in the field. Um, I'm using, uh, like you, Internet to get information to the public. The public knows where UFO information is. It's not on CNN and Fox News. UFOs get 234 million searches a year. Jesus gets 151. And this is, these are like Google statistics. Yes, these are Google statistics. You know, think about the interest of UFOs out there. Um, it's really easy. I don't want to see our community of ufologists crumble. I don't want to see any part of it. I want to see everybody, you know, learn to do this like, our, like the guys before us. These giants were doing it when they were dialing telephones and walking and pay phones and, you know, uh, literally going through box after box after box when they were allowed to look at information. And, and I'll it, also add that um, uh, in the last, I'm going to say the last decade, I have seen things change dramatically as far as the public acceptance. And I'm, this is coming from someone who's talking about his own experiences openly. Um, uh, the, the public acceptance of this is, has changed. So what was going on in 1969 when MUFON was formed was, you know, a, a very different uphill battle than what is what you know what right. on an individual level you know people who claim to have seen these things are experiencing it is it has changed a lot but we don't have to start at square one these guys were brilliant they've done all that work for us so we need to pick it up in the age of the internet and in the age of this technology to continue that mindset these guys already did that work for us. It's done. They are brilliant. It was good, good work. And we can stand on that and take it from here. And that's where, you know, the group I'm with, uh, you know, I belong to a radio alliance. I belong to an alliance of, you know, professionals. And that's exactly, we stick together. We cooperate. We work together. And we hope to bring out a new mindset that is we're professional we don't play around with the stuff anymore. We're not going to let the media have our good stuff unless they treat it with the respect it deserves. The people that came before us and the people we are to this day. These are scientific cases, you know, being laughed at through uh, mainstream media. We're developing a resistance where... Well, yeah, here, let's, let's talk about this because this, this is the final thing on my checklist. of. I only had three things to talk about, um, <laughs> and this is the third one, is, is the resistance, which is a... It can just explain what that is? Well, it's, it's something that Lauren Cutts and I have developed, and right now it's just on Facebook. It's in its infancy, and again, we both have many uh, tasks on our desk but it was something important enough for us to include in an already overloaded workload. And that is the resistance is a place to just go show support. And the premise of it is, is we're done working with the mainstream media. We're done with the Anderson Coopers and these local TV cast and these 
stupid networks that want to put on these hokey hit pieces and these ridiculous shows where, you know, they make UFOs uh, investigators all look like Laura Croft. And (laughs) you're talking about the the James Fox things that was done for uh, for the uh, National Geographic. I can't remember. It was Chasing UFOs. Is that what it's called? Yeah, but, you know, some of the antics, uh, you know, and we now know that they, you know, they were faking. You know, they weren't really infiltrating an airport. They weren't really coming on the shore, you know, so we know that a lot of that was for fun. And, but we're done with that. What our stance is, is this is a professional science, whether you're a cryptozoologist, paranormal investigator, ufologist. We're going to resist the the mainstream media and giving them these opportunities. We're done hoping they do our stories justice we're not saying boycott them we're saying until they give us the respect of coming at us with the same research standards and journalistic standards that they would a 7-eleven robbery or you know any other story including the cute little cat taken out of the tree by the firemen you know it until they stop with this x-file music and tongue-in-cheek anchor introductions we're done with them. We have alternative media. Again, everyone knows where the in- information on UFOs, uh, Bigfoot, uh, Chupacabras, it's on the Internet. Very little credible information is anywhere else. So we're asking people to use alternative medias um, or not be so willing to just hand over our cases in hopes of. Make them follow through. Let them you know, show you what they know. Uh, Jesse Ventura just did a a piece on Bigelow. Well, yes, and-, and that was on my list here to ask you about. Yeah, I just saw that the other night in Elaine Douglas, who we've talked about, um, who was part of the, uh, oh, with a, we, she got fired from MUFON or whatever that's called. I don't know what that's called when you're a member, but she was definitely let go in a, in a, with, for reasons that no one shared with her. She is part of uh, that, that, uh, television show, which I watched the other night. And I have to say, uh, it is a type of television that I do not like, right? I, I don't like that style of, of kind of cable documentary reality stuff. It, 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 it doesn't jive with me. I don't like it. That said, I thought that for whatever, 45 minutes, you know, however long the program was, um, that for that time they did tell uh, a rapid fire interesting story that that I found very unsettling absolutely you know but uh Bigelow admitted that when he's asked um and i I don't know if it's um Sean Stone or uh Jesse's son that asked Bigelow personally, and you could tell they're kind of you know talking a little off camera because it wasn't a setup shot, but you know he asks him. You know, what do you think? What do you tell people about UFOs? And he's like, well, I ask them, what do they know about UFOs? How long have they been researching? Tell me. And that's actually good advice. You know, I'm not going to give a reporter that, you know, knows nothing about UFOs, anything. And Mike, the experience I had in Tennessee, trust me, for two years, I've been asked by television shows. We want to do a, you know, uh, an episode, uh, you know, TV, what. It's not for sale because until I find the right avenue that it will be done properly and as truthfully as possible, it's not for sale. And that's what we're just asking uh, for everybody to stand up for one another, you know, stand up for the professionalism and 
they're not going to get our stuff. They come to us with us. They want these pieces. I'm just not going to give it to them until they give us the respect that this hard work deserves. And that's what the resistance is. We have a lot of big plans for the resistance websites, you know, uh, all the usual suspects. But right now it's just a campaign and it's a place for people to go. What started this and the catalyst was watching Anderson Cooper take two very young, credible witnesses that claim to have an encounter and brutalize them on public television. And the aftermath of that was they lost their jobs. They're humiliated in their town. And that's just not good enough anymore. It's I, We're not going to stand for it anymore. These are our witnesses. That's their experience. They promised they weren't going to do that to them. And they did it anyway. And we're going to hold them accountable. Anderson Cooper and CNN will no longer get anything from me. Yes, and whatever. I, I like. I have no interest at all in trying to, you know, like, like to me, trying to convince someone of the reality of this is like not even on my radar. I'm not interested at all. I am much more interested in exploring the, and as I said it before, like the human side of this, this experience, um, because it is so complicated and so subtle and so divergent between people. And also Anderson Cooper, like shame on him. I mean, this is a guy that just recently came out and right. admitted he was gay. You know, like, and and right. I mean, what. You know, there's, I mean, so he must have direct experience or, I mean, certainly be very intimate with the history of like the persecution publicly and the, and the, the, the venomous dismissal of, of, you know, the homosexual community. I mean, that, that to me, I was just shocked at the insensitivity of that. Um, yeah, I mean, and, it's one thing to say, "Hey, I'm skeptical." You know, like I am having a, I'm having trouble believing what you're saying. Um, that is different than than out and out, you know, uh, you know, contempt. Right, and you know, would I love another CNN? Yes, put in Richard Dolan, put in one of our absolute finest when it comes to historical knowledge. The guy's a walk encyclopedia. Um, you know, poor John Ventry looked like the biggest buffoon ever in the UFO world. And it wasn't his fault. That was editing. We get that. Except the general public now sees a bunch of buffoons. And that is unsat. That's not necessary. You know, that's where we're going. It, it's just kind of a place. Um, you know, we've had people join that have been those witnesses ridiculed by media. We have investigators, we have researchers, we have people that just understand and, and want to be part of and want to see a really good UFO TV show. It, it, these, we're not against the media and these avenues. We're just taking back control. And that's what the resistance is. Now, here's my take on this. Like, you know, Richard Dolan is as eloquent as anyone involved in the field. Um, I am not interested in seeing... Richard Dolan on a primetime network program, even even if he was treated completely seriously, if he's only going to have a four minute little sound bite, just the way that modern television is like, it doesn't seem like there's any way to explore this stuff in any kind of depth. Um, you and I have been talking, let me look at the clock here, two hours and 15 minutes. I feel like we're just barely getting on a roll here. Uh, <laughs> and so this, these subjects are not, easy to simplify they are not complex you cannot give someone the condensed reader's digest version because that would be that would 
be unfair to the phenomena itself because it's it's far too in- complex. Agree. And that's one of the reasons that I've kind of, uh, you know, I'm very, I don't speak as often about, you know, my experience because it is huge. And, you know, and there, and I have done, you know, kind of these interviews where they've been quick, 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 quick. So I really appreciate because you were very thorough in it and it's, it's awesome. It really is. But you're right that, you know, we're so far ahead. The media needs to catch up and, we or, or I'm going to say just right now, the media would like. I am unconcerned. Like, leave them in the dust. Yeah. I have no more concern with the media than I do with the, the you know, I'm just trying to think of something that I would dismiss without even thinking about it. You know, the, the, you know, the raving lunatic in the. Well, actually, I have a great amount of compassion for the raving lunatic in the town square. Uh, you know, much more than the than the than the media. So awesome, and that's exactly. Uh, kind of my mindset. It's it's going to take a lot for me to you know put my head back in there. And again, the statistics just from Google: two hundred and thirty-four million searches on UFOs on the internet. They're not going to the television for information. And you know, it's our social media, our Facebook pages, our Twitter. People, this is this is where people are getting their information. So you know, to stay in these avenues, you're right. No one gives a crap about Fox News and CNN, especially in our field. I'm with you. They'll never get anything from me. But I'm not against others that also, you know, want the opportunity to maybe reach people who are not on that Internet and still use that medium. Um, But I'm with you. I'd leave them in the dust if they're not getting anything from me. Um, I'm too busy. I've got way bigger fish to fry than these little networks. Um. So yeah, Facebook I, is. I mean, I. It's easy to dismiss Facebook because it's like a place where you know whatever things can get pretty childish and silly, and there's a lot of people who say like you know now I'm off to feed the dog, you know, and then that's their little Facebook post. What I have found though is that more than any, I am shocked at how important Facebook has become in the connections between people um, uh, in this realm. I have found. I have made some very, very close contacts, just exactly what you were talking about, that camaraderie with people who claim this contact experience. Here, let me just read something. This has just came this morning. Um, I won't give who it's from, but I'm just going to read it off. <clears throat> My family and I are missing about four hours this evening. We've tried to list everything we've done, and we're four hours short, and it ticks me off. It's happened before, and it's not just me. It's all of us in the house. I mean, that is the difference between, I guess, the, the reality of 2012 and, you know, who, how would you have announced that in such a, I mean, this is, this is a little bit of a desperate plea in a way, but how would you have announced that a decade ago? Right. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm a big Facebooker. I, I love it for exactly that reason. I have friends in Russia. I have friends that, you know, I can ask to check out something in Spain, in, you know, friggin' the UK. Um, I, I, what was it? Zimbabwe. It, it, I love, I love it. Um, and I think it's all in how you present yourself. I don't have a lot of drama on my page. Um, when you consider how many people interact on my Facebook page, and that includes the Project White Paper and our resistance. You know, it's well, well over 20,000. 
you know, correspondence and ties. Ooh, okay. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah. I mean, what what we, you and I are you and I are talking on what it would amounts to be a very modest podcast. I mean, I mean, I don't know how many downloads this is going to get, you know, a few hundred. Uh but I my sense is that it's the right 200 or a few hundred. Um so I'll just I'll just leave it at that. Hey, one of the things I've also been doing is uh, I've as far as just talking about the internet is I have made an attempt to try to keep up to date with first person bloggers and anyone out there who's listening if they want to send me any links that I may not have caught please do whether it's people blogging or or people with full on websites like Whitley Strieber for instance um I've got f- only 40 listed, and I know there's more out there, but these are basically people who are telling their own first-person experiences, you know, uh, sort of declaring it to the world um, online, you know, uh, using – most of them using their real names. Right, right. Yeah. It's definitely a different world in the technology, um, and we have to be a little careful with that as well. Uh, even I got excited with some of the satellite apps and things on the phone and was using those in the investigation until all of a sudden it hit me when I'm standing there, and it's telling me that that is absolutely not a satellite when it's kind of moving more like it. I just need to verify a satellite in the location. And then it hit me, well, wait a minute. I bet you China's not on this app how many they have or the united states you know robert bigelow we don't really know all the satellite and activity so is this app really something i want to rely on in my investigation and call this an unknown even though it behaves very much like a satellite so we do have to be a little careful and and kind of smart but that has to do with staying in touch and exactly reading the blogs there's so many smart people contributing, and we just need to know where to find each other. And that's Facebook and Twitter and, you know, hooking each other up and not being afraid to get in there. Uh, we'll post a couple things, and, and we'll get somebody saying, that's a complete hoax. It was hoaxed since, you know, two months ago. Really? How was it hoaxed? What is your data? You see what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, and- yeah. I mean, it's very easy to make these knee-jerk I mean, whatever, that's one of the, whatever, the, 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 you know, the internet has its own, like, backlash, too. I mean, it can be an angry place full of, you know, people sort of trolling just to make trouble. Um, But, um, you know, that's true of anything. Right. And I really don't have that. I just put something uh, last night about uh, a Russian prime minister, I believe it was, you know, who literally on a newscast started talking about an alien invasion uh, that he confirmed and knew of and, uh, and all of a sudden, and this is on Sky TV out of uh, the UK, and all of a sudden they cut the, the story and they cut him and she's like, oh, okay. And, you know, and they, and they segue into another crazy little segment and then all this information comes out. Oh, yeah, he was just joking. Oh, yeah, this, this, and that. I don't know. You know, so we have different opinions. Somebody saying, oh, that was proved a hoax. This was it. Um, and again, it's it's how you how you present yourself is kind of the friends you get. I can tell you that all the people on Facebook page, nobody's ugly to each other. We're all good because they know that's important to me. Nice matters and cooperation. And it's okay if this person has a different opinion. I like that on my team. I don't want everybody who thinks like me involved with something that I'm doing. You know, I like debate. I like skeptics. They keep us honest. Yeah, and I'm—I mean, I'm skeptical too. I mean, right? You know, so I'm skeptical of 
but skeptic is different than debunking. You know, skeptic, you know, basically just means that, you know, like, you know, oh, whoa, whoa, you've, you're telling it a very profoundly strange story. You know, like in order for me to, to believe it, I'm going to have to ask a lot of questions and dig deep. So that, and, if, and I, in a way I was, I was, I trust that everything you've said as far as that was, was true. It, it, and I was, I was just basically playing in essence, the role of skeptic. I wanted to better understand that story that took place in, in, um, in uh, Tennessee. And I appreciate that. I really do. And, you know, that's the one thing I can say is that, you know, the story um, and that event that happened, um, I'm not even going to lie. I just, you know, I kind of don't want to be known for that because I feel like, you know, I, I do so many other things out here that, you know, or I don't know, it's that are more fun, I guess. But, you know, it is it is a big case. It yields a lot of information. It didn't yield answers, but there's a lot of information that other investigators, researchers, and ufologists uh, may need someday. And it's why we came clean. It's why we told the truth. And it's why we gave everything. Yeah. Hey, just I just as I was sitting here, I, I just quickly looked up online. Um, the event that took place with me in the tent uh, with my friend Natasha, where we had that intense irrational fear, took place on the night of Thursday, May 13th, 2010. That was about a week after ours. Okay. So within seven days of each other, let's say, or well, roughly. Um, that is interesting. I just had an interview with a woman, um, Nadine Leach, that she uh, and I both left Southfield, Michigan and moved away forever. Uh, I had no idea who she was at the time. She's a little bit older than I was, but I would have been 19 at, in 2000, excuse me, in, in 1981. We both moved. Uh, she moved out in August and I moved out in September. And, and I left uh, my hometown and moved away when I co- went to college and never moved back. So, um, you know, so these little odd things, and I and I have had this conversation with, <clears throat> in great depth with um, with Lauren Cutts, that there is like these little synchronicities these little coincidences, um, uh, I just, I don't know whether, I don't know quite what they mean, but I feel it's important to explore them. Let me just put it that way. There yeah, may not it, be an answer, but I, I just feel that they have to be brought to the table just the same way that the soil sample in the burn mark in the backyard is brought to the table. Right. I have to tell you, it was May 8th. May 8th, five that days apart. Days. And, you know, I, I, I always have that May 1st in my head. But that's when that flood happened. I, I, I always remembered that the initial report was April 20th. And the flood hit May 1st, which meant I couldn't get out there for another week. So it was May 8th. All of this happened. No, the 7th. It started on the 7th. So technically it was May 8th because it's after midnight when all this. But yeah, the 7th and the 8th. Wow. So yeah, within five days of each other. Very, very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that, I mean, this little detail—I don't know what it means, but you know, it's worth—it's worth mulling over. Let me say it. Let me just say that. Hey, um, uh, how you holding up? We've been at it two and a half hours. Anything you feel like you need to add to this? Not really. I think it's um, yeah, I think it's been great. This has been exactly what I wanted to sort of explore with you. So I feel really grateful that that you were as honest uh, about something that I find like. From direct experience, I, I understand that this stuff can be emotional, um, and and just thanks for for uh, you know letting me ask you these questions. It really it really does mean a lot to me. 
Um, and, uh, and I also want to just, just, if you could just chime in and just fill me in on what's going on with your audio program at, um, at GRA. Um, there's so much, uh, going on with that. Um, we have project white paper. I also, um, am part of another radio show called encounters that I share the mic with Richard Dolan, Peter Robbins, Nick Redfern, Mac Maloney, and that's also over there. Um, I sit on a panel with uh, Above Top Secret website alumni, and that's a radio show called Above Top Secret Live. And what we do is we take the top trending stories off of the world's largest conspiracy website, and we talk about them every Saturday night. And it, it's um, uh, let's see, I've just signed on uh, along with Richard Dolan to IMU, and Richard just completed a an, an crazy, awesome case about the history of ufology, and it comes with a manual, but these are courses, college, uh, university-level courses that are available through them, and I'm the next one on board that's finishing up field investigation, so um, I'll be teaching. A manual will be, be coming out as well uh, that will be published by Keyhole Publishing, um, just so much is going on a lot in. Oh, so the manual that would be like a, like a field guide, uh, like a, uh, investigators field guide. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I start right down to, you know, why it's important for us to, uh, use proper case management and forensics because five years from now, you know, what we're doing is important enough and we have to have cases, you know, that are professionally put together so that when we hand them over, you know, it's it's worthy or notable and quotable and we can go back. So, yeah, it starts as simple as uh, proper case management, what actually goes in, forensics. Um, yeah, the ins and outs of field investigation, whether it's cryptozoology, ufology, or even paranormal. So uh, that course will be done and hopefully uh, ready on the schedule for fall. And... The other thing is just my partnership with Ghost Hunt Weekends and doing a lot of live on-location events. That's live video. So with Project White Paper and the GRA, we actually can bring our audience now on these events, uh, whether it's you know looking for Bigfoot, ghost hunting, or UFO investigations, with the very people on TV. So it's you know with the TAPS team and the ghost hunters, and you know some of the boots on the ground and are you know kind of leaders in the field and we actually go live on location with them so a lot of really good stuff going on there's you know a big pile on my desk wow you are busy yeah well and i haven't forgotten uh, as soon as we're done with the interview mike uh, you know i have a witness that i need to call and talk uh, talk to so i i still am involved in investigations so well well good for you um yeah i mean this is it's uh Whatever, there's no easy answers, and the act of investigating is is uh, on one level very personally fascinating, and and on another level, it's it's um, you know it seems like I'm getting no closer to a true answer, but the the strangeness of the entirety of the phenomenon just never ceases to be um, I don't know how to say it almost seductive. I just feel like I'm continually being pulled by it. Oh, absolutely, I know that feeling. Okay. Hey, well, thanks so much. It's been, we've been at it for two and a half hours. This is much longer than I thought we'd go. 
And um, I thought everything we covered went great. Me too, Mike. Thank you so much for uh, having me. I've been looking forward to it. And, you know, stay in touch. You're, you're a great asset to all of us. Well, I mean, yeah, what I'm doing is, you know, is I feel like I'm just sort of off in the corner, just like sort of focusing on the personal human side of this stuff. So, um, yeah, so thank you so much. And, um, and yeah, well, I'll, I will certainly keep in touch. Sounds great. Thanks. Okay, bye now. All right, see ya.